The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. And rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. We are absolutely knee deep in the third season of the Subgenre Podcast. And if you haven't joined us until just now, welcome to the party. This season, we're getting all tangled up in time twister movies, and our brains are nearly redlining trying to keep it all straight. As always, I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and in this episode, we're running in like concentric circles about a man and his future self, and they're trying to make a little money and fix what's to come and not get themselves or anybody else killed in the process, except maybe those who deserve it. It's a film directed by super talent Ryan Johnson, you know, the Knives Out guy, and it stars the likes of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis, and Emily Blunt. Hope for silver, not for gold. We're quantum leaping into the 2012 sci-fi action thriller, Looper. And here with me through the magic of the internet from the West Coast, as I sit and roast to death in the humidity of Studio K here on the East, is a very familiar voice on subgenre. He's Hollywood studio guy, we'll call him, and screenwriter Steve Baumgartner. Welcome back to Subgenre, Steve. Thank you, Josh. It is a delight to be back on Subgenre Season 3. Time Twisters. I am so happy that you're here with your radio announcer voice and making the show sound so much better than it really deserves to be. I think you've been here mm-hmm. three times. You were here in yep. season one, episode eight and nine, talking about Das Boot, yeah. and uh, season two, episode six, talking about Bob Le Flambeau. Bob Le Flambeau. And we finally have you here to talk about something in English. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> want to uh, ignore the illiterate part of my fan base. So <laughs> if you're having trouble reading subtitles, this episode's for you. Yeah, I'm sorry that we waited this long to get you into your native tongue to talk about a film. But I'm glad that you're here. We are talking about a film that, truth be told, you suggested to me when I started mentioning that we were going to do Time Twisters as the subject of this season. You said, hey, you got to check out Looper. It's a movie that I honestly have never seen, but you have. And so we are covering it here. Ryan Johnson, I'm very hot and cold on his various movies, uh-huh. and but I hadn't seen any of them a second time. This was one which I was hot on, and I thought it'd be fun to go back and see if I feel the same way. I think it's also been a movie that was fairly popular, but I think it's sort of fallen out of the popular conversation, maybe because it's been overshadowed by... Uh, more popular Ryan Johnson movies, uh, one of which is a science fiction movie as well. Yeah, he's done a few things Uh, since then. Yeah, yeah, he's working. (laughs) This movie, I know it was big. Like, tell me if I'm wrong, but at the time it was relatively big. It was sci-fi, it was fun, it was go to a theater popcorn movie. I literally don't remember hearing about it. I may have been tucked away in a cave somewhere, but I do not remember hearing about Looper when it first came out. And then when I did hear it, something about the title turned me off and I never wanted to watch it. It just sounded like a cheesy title or something. I've I've never seen it. So I was very excited that you suggested something I had written off in the past. When I told my sister that I'd be doing an episode on Looper, she kind of said, the Bruce Willis movie, (laughs) which I don't know if this is sort of suffering from his later career. Yeah more mercenary pictures, 
But yeah, it apparently it opened the same day as Pitch Perfect. And I think like Pitch Perfect made about the same amount of money, but Pitch Perfect also spawned two sequels. And you say Pitch Perfect and people know what it is. Right. Whereas Looper, I think it's more of a vague memory, if that. Well, let's talk about this vague memory. Let's set this up for everybody as we typically do and give a little backstory on Looper. Tell me what we know. Looper came out in 2012. It opened the Toronto International Film Festival, as a matter of fact. If you're wondering um, what the world was like at the time, it was about two months before the presidential election where Barack Obama defeated Mitt Romney. And it was also in the United States when Gangnam Style was uh, oh, no. zooming up the charts. <laughs> yeah. So now that you've got a little bit of sociocultural reference point. Got it. Uh, came out through TriStar and it did well. It did globally about, I think, $176 million in the theater before Stoney put it out on video. What was the budget uh, on it? I read that it's $30 million. 30, which, $30 million and made 176 worldwide? Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, it, yeah. And it's one of those movies which it did pretty well in America, but globally it did well above what it did in America. If you are unfamiliar with Ryan Johnson, and I cannot imagine you are unfamiliar with Ryan Johnson as a listener, but if you are, Ryan Johnson, Steve, tell us why we should know Ryan Johnson besides the fact, uh, as I mentioned, that he's the Knives Out guy. Well, he sort of popped on everybody's radar when he made a, a film noir in high school movie called Brick, also starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then his second feature was quite different. It's called The Brothers Bloom. Rachel Weisz is in it, Mark Ruffalo, Adrian Brody. And that didn't get the same sort of attention. But then he made several episodes of Breaking Bad, which I think really shot up his stock. Yeah. Uh, just from the outside, that's what it appears with. And then this movie came out did well. Next film after this, uh, The Last Jedi and the Knives Out movie. I don't know that I've forgotten anything in there. That's certainly the highlights. And we said he directed this film. He also wrote the film. Correct. Oh, that's nice yeah. when you can do that. I think whenever a writer is also directing and you've got skills in both, that you can really find a way to overcome the shortcomings of one or the other. And I think you get a much more handcrafted kind of, I don't mean in terms of professionalism, but it seems more personal. It seems yeah. more individual when somebody can do that. And you can walk in and make the claim through the door that you should definitely be called an auteur if you're both <laughs> writing and directing. Yes. The trailers can say you're a visionary. There you go. Ryan Johnson, even when I don't like the final product, he's not a slouch. You know, the guy works. So yeah. the film is produced by a gentleman named Ron Bergman. Um, Ron Bergman is basically Ryan Johnson's producer on everything. Bergman produced the Star Wars movie and produced Knives Out and other things. As you mentioned, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who everybody is going to know from a few different places, maybe Inception, maybe 500 Days of Summer. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been in everything. He, he was in the student film of Ryan Johnson, but mm. has been in every ryan johnson film to that point right or or every J ryan johnson film period i don't know if he's in brothers bloom or not i don't remember him in it but i know that in some of the later movies he's basically a voice on the phone or over the computer yeah. or something like that so he might be in there even if i don't remember it he shares the screen with bruce willis of course everybody knows bruce right die hard and the, and the rest including a film that we may or may not cover in the rest of this season on time twisters stay tuned for that as well as Emily Blunt, who I know best from The Devil Wears Prada. She plays uh, the assistant to... Miranda Priestly. Miranda Priestly, right. Love her in that. She's also in films like Edge of Tomorrow yeah. and others. So uh, 
really fun primary cast, but then you also get the addition of Jeff Daniels. I'm really glad Jeff Daniels is still around and working because he has so many great roles before he became best known for Dumb and Dumber, whether it's uh, Terms of Endearment or Purple Rose of Cairo or Something Wild. Those are all really terrific movies. And it, yeah. I, I never felt he got the attention he deserved for a long time. The film was shot by Steve Yedlin. Um, Steve, who, again, is one of the crew that Ryan Johnson takes with him everywhere, shoots a lot of stuff, including, which I found out while researching him, doesn't just shoot the great movies for Ryan Johnson. He also shot a really great music video, the Oh Baby video for LCD Sound System. So uh, props to you, Steve Yedlin, for all the LCD (laughs) Sound System fans out there. Edited by Bob Duxey, who did things like The Mummy and Van Helsing and Star Wars and the rest of it. Some really nice editing in here. Editing a good Mm sci-fi movie, especially one that deals with time, takes a particular touch. I'm glad you mentioned the editing because I'm really impressed and there's a lot of detail and a lot of incidents in this movie and it doesn't gum up the works. I think the movie is really fleet, particularly in the first half when they're world building, where things make an impression. You get it as a viewer, but it's not dwelt upon. It's a really good ride. Talk about world building, the production design in this by Ed Vero. Other movies, you know, Jurassic World stuff and so on, but actually did the production design on one of my favorite movies, Contact, Mm. where it's less world building than you're doing here, but really putting you in the place of researchers who you can't understand what the hell they're saying, but you do get the location that they are. I like his work. I'm glad he's on this film. When I think of Contact, I think of some of those great space launching pads. And uh, there's a something that happens at the end with Jodie Foster's character, which also really sticks in the mind. And a good deal of that is because of Ed Verrill. The music in this, this is where we get to the, whatever you want to call them, the nepotism or the uh, just the talent, and we'll call it the talent in one family. You get Ryan Johnson directing and writing, and you get his brother Nathan composing the music. That's got to be nice to have hanging around the house, you know? How dare you say nepotism? You can have, <laughs> I think, a lot of talent in the family is the better way to put it. I think Come that's on. the better way to put it. Absolutely. What, you know, he's going to turn down a job to work on a Ryan Johnson movie? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, yeah. <laughs> I need siblings that direct movies so I can get some work. I'll take it. It's fine. (laughs) We'll wrap up setting up the scene for you here with uh, something, again, that I have been trying to do every episode, which is to give a shout out to a crew member that is in that long credit list at the end of the movies that never really gets mentioned on podcasts like this or shows. And so this time around, because we are world building, because we are jumping back and forth in time, and because there is a lot of different types of places, even within this movie that we end up, I'm going to give a shout out to Leslie D. Wickham. Uh, Leslie Wickham actually is the ager and dyer for the costume department and is the person responsible for really just making everything feel lived in. So all the clothing, all the bags, all the everything, they're made new for movies and they got to be stressed and de-stressed all the places to make them look the way they do. So shout out to uh, Leslie Wickham, who has worked on things like Django, worked on Benjamin Button, I think basically does anything that happens in and around New Orleans. Uh, If there's any shooting Mm -hmm. within that whole area, that's who you call. Leslie on LinkedIn says that the skill set is matching, dyeing, suede cleaning, leather working, and pussycat whisker eradication from pants, which I think is a, a wonderful skill to list on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, Leslie corners the market there. Thank you, Leslie. Well, that's the movie that we're going to try to cover here. It's Looper. It's by Ryan Johnson. Here comes a great cast. Here comes an interesting film, and you're going to find all of them in our feature presentation.
Yep, that's right. It's our feature presentation. We are talking about Looper from 2012. And we say this on a lot of things, like don't spoil your movie. Go watch movies and and get the experience and then come listen to us. If you insist on listening to us before you watch this movie, it is now your fault, not our fault. We are going to spoil things. And so spoil away we go. The film starts out to me really interestingly because it starts with a watch. I mean, that's okay. Time travel movie. We're going to look at a watch, but we're looking at kind of an older pocket watch as somebody checks the time. The person that is checking the time is our lead actor, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, playing the character Joe. And he's, for some reason that we don't understand yet, sitting in a cornfield in front of a tarp practicing French. And it doesn't quite look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think we're going to be talking about that later. We will definitely. You know that face? Put a pin in it. (laughs) You're right. It doesn't look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt typically does, and we'll find out why that is here in a second. But uh, nonetheless, here he is, practicing his French, waiting in front of a tarp. He does have something with him, a shotgun, which, after consulting the watch, he cocks and aims at this empty tarp in the middle of a field. Almost immediately, a figure out of no, almost like, you know, it's a jump cut, right? There's a figure that just appears on this tarp. The figure has their head in a bag. They're on their hands and knees. Their hands are tied. And without any hesitation whatsoever, our character Joe shoots that person. We find out through voiceover. So this movie does have a bit of voiceover. We find out through voiceover from Joe a few things. Right now, as we're watching the movie, time travel hasn't been invented yet. But in 30 years... It will be. And when it is invented, it is going to be immediately outlawed because of all the problems that it causes. But when something is immediately outlawed by anyone who picks it up and runs with it, the criminals, which is exactly what has happened. And all of this is taking place now that we're watching, we are told, in Kansas in the year 2044. And one thing that I think really uh, starts this movie off with a bang. Ha. No. Yeah. Yeah is that while he's describing what the future must be like as far as how time travel is managed, we see him disposing of the body on the tarp. Our ears are learning one thing and our eyes are learning another thing at the same time. You said Joe looks a little different. Here's how Joe looks a little different to me. We're used to seeing Joseph Gordon-Levitt as kind of a clean-cut kid, right? That's just sort of his look generally. In this, he's a little less clean-cut. He's a little more square-jawed. He just looks not like himself. Is that fair? That's fair to say. So Joe has, as you said, taken this person that he has shot with a shotgun that's on a tarp, wrapped him up in the tarp, put him in the back of a pickup, and has driven away. The place he has driven to is this little diner in the middle of nowhere, kind of out in the sticks in Kansas. We forgot a detail. There are so many details. Oh, you're right. There's a huge detail. On the back of the person who Joe has shot, on the tarp, Joe sort of opens up a plasticky kind of bag, essentially. And there are row after row of bars of silver, which is Joe's payment for making the kill and disposing of the body. Right. So he shot the guy, he turns him around and he gets silver. And if you're wondering why somebody would send a body back in time to be shot, because apparently in the future, we're told that body disposal is a big problem. That's the thing. As he's driving his way to this diner, as we're going to this diner, we're listening to his voiceover and he's setting all this up for us. And he's telling us again that getting rid of bodies, that's hard now. You can't really 
really hide bodies for whatever reasons, right? Microchips and the rest of it, I'm assuming. So in order to get around that problem, the mob in the future now takes whoever it is they want to get rid of, sends them back in time to him or people like him who are called loopers, and the loopers stand around, wait for them to appear, and then blast the hell out of them whenever they appear, and then they get paid for it. Yeah, it's much easier to get rid of a body in this time period, which uh, the Chiron tells us is Kansas City 2044. He goes to the diner, he gets himself a cup of coffee and a breakfast, he briefly talks to this waitress who will show up again. Her name is Beatrix. She knows a little French, it seems like. He talks a little French to her just to say, hey, and how are you into practice? There's that thing, which uh, we'll come back to. But what he's going to do immediately is he's going to take his silver that he has been sent from the future, and he's going to take it to what seems to be a participating pawn shop of a sort and shove the silver through the hole in the door, and they're going to shove cash back at him that he can then spend in the real world. It's definitely participating because they've got that plastic container on the wall like you would put a file on in an office only says, put your guns here when you're bringing your silver to the window. And we find out that the guns that the people are putting in that, which are kind of these, you know, big shotgun looking devices, on the sign above it gives them a name. Mm -hmm. They are called a blunderbuss, which a blunderbuss is a real thing, right? That is a type of gun that has existed since, I don't know, you know, revolutionary wartime, right? The blunderbuss that we know of is the one that's sort of got a flared end, like you might see a pilgrim holding it. Like Elmer Fudd would hold. You trump me and my Fudd weaponry. (laughs) I don't know. But yes, they're called blunderbusses. Blunder by, blunder, whatever they are, you have to leave them in a thing on the wall whenever you go up there. And we're we're given actually just a little bit of detail about the blunderbusses at that point, too. The blunderbuss is good for things that are up close. It's called that because it'll obliterate anything that's within, you know, X amount of feet from it. And it will absolutely not hit anything that is beyond that mark. Like, it's just, it's so inaccurate that you have to basically be right up on somebody to do it. But that works fine for the job that the loopers are doing. There's our details so far about how this whole thing is working. Joe gets his money and takes his cash. I think we hear from somebody that he's passing on the way in and out that there's a party tonight. So he's headed home to get ready and to practice his French. Josh, uh, let's talk about the Kansas City that we see in this movie here. It's pretty dire. It's tent cities. Uh, Apparently, there's still an unhoused issue that hasn't been resolved in the future. People are living in the street. They're stealing stuff. It's not quite Blade Runner. It's not that sort of like slick future, lots of downtrodden people, but in a really nice place. This is a lot of downtrodden people in a really downtrodden place. It doesn't feel as otherworldly as Blade Runner. It feels like this is something that our world could develop into in the 30 years since the movie was made. And in the midst of all of this uh, crime and everything else that's happening, there is a nice sports car that's being driven through it. This is being driven by Joe. He's got the money, so he's got the nice sports car. He ends up over near someone. You mentioned there are floating bikes, floating motorcycles, Mm. floating jet skis. Uh, He ends up in an alley near someone else who has a really nice bike and who is threatening a person near him who maybe wants to wander away with it. And we find out that this is Joe's friend, Seth, who is played by Paul Dano. Was it a nice surprise? Did you know Paul Dano was going to come up? No, I had no idea. I really, I tried to stay in the dark about this before I watched it. And so seeing him show up, it takes me a second because he's always a little bit of a chameleon, right? You just, I kind of have to adjust my eyes and go, oh yeah, that's him. But yeah, seeing him here, loved it. Yeah, he brings a lot of nice grace notes uh, to the movie. So Paul is also a looper. We learned that. He has a blunderbuss. We learned that. They are headed in uh, Joe's car to the club, whatever club this may be. They're headed together tonight to go hang out and find girls and whatever. 
And the third thing that we find out about Seth on the way to the club is that he has a special ability, telekinesis, which they call TK. Although it's very minor, it's explained to us that when this was discovered, uh, everybody went crazy, like it was going to be a fantastic breakthrough. And it just basically turned out to be a whole bunch of people being able to levitate coins. And it wasn't uh, even a breakthrough, right? They called a mutation. It's what is it? 10 percent of the population or something has a mutation, which they don't explain, which allows them to float quarters in the air. And that's basically all ends up being able to come of it. It's a cheap pickup trick for somebody like Seth. Yeah. And Joe tells him so. He's a, he's a stop doing that. It's tacky. But, you know, Seth is convinced this is what's going to lead him to the promised land with the ladies. Chicks dig TK. That's right. They pull up in front of a, you know, again, not not the best looking club in the world, but a big club with a big sign on the front and it's called La Belle Aurore. It is essentially a strip club. Seems like a few other things to do in there, but that seems to be what this place is. And they get to go through the back door because they're loopers. Inside the club, Joe has a meetup with another character that we're getting to meet for the first time. And this is one of the dancers whose name is Susie, played by Piper Parabo. And Joe is sweet on Susie, but Susie has other customers for the night and that doesn't sit well with Joe. Do you think Joe is actually sweet on her? It seems like she's almost a convenient accessory for his lifestyle, I would say. Maybe, uh, but it's not like he's going to settle for anybody. He is very disappointed when she says that she's not available, even though there's a club full of other people. So I took away at least from it, at least yeah. somehow that there is an attachment there that whether or not it's all the way to, hey, you want to go steady? No, probably not. But is it, you know, this is my favorite person in the club? Yeah, maybe. We don't get to see much about it play out at this point because, again, she's got other clients. She takes off. That leaves Joe to kind of wander around with the other loopers who are hanging out in the back of this club. And everybody is gathered around these steps that lead downstairs to we don't know what, but we assume somewhere important because everyone is waiting for a person who is described as having closed his loop. And we get some voiceover, I think, that tells us exactly what closing the loop means. We talked about the silver bars that were sort of in the pack of mm -hmm. the victims' bodies uh, that the loopers would take after they blunderbuss them to death. However, if you wind up shooting somebody, because remember, their heads are covered, and you undo the pack and there are gold bars, in a way it's good because you got a whole lot more money. The downside of that is it means that your job is done. So not only are you out of the business, but you know that in 30 years, set your watch to it, that's the end of your life. So Yeah, you're shooting yourself unknowingly and getting paid for it. Yeah. yeah. And you have 30 years to sort of to think about that. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a fun line about this job does not attract the most forward thinking people, <laughs> which in a way is kind of important because at least Joe has thought of that himself. You know, he realizes that his situation is essentially a dead end. There is a celebratory attitude to someone having just murdered themselves with everybody buying them drinks. And the person who has closed his loop seems very happy about it, whether that's put on or not, who knows. But that is what the atmosphere is when this happens. And so it seems like something to look forward to. Uh, well, or at least to make yourself drugged up and party to get over a really difficult milestone. And that's the thing that Joe has determined that he's going to start already with the silver that he's been getting at nearly every opportunity early on that we encounter Joe. Joe is on drugs or he's taking drugs and the drugs come by way of eye drops 
which I guess is the new fad way of getting your fix. But yes, he's, either he's giving himself eye drops or somebody else is giving him eye drops and then off we go to party. So he does his drugs and he's driving. He's got Seth in the back, I think another guy. He's going through one of the many down the heel streets and nearly runs into a little boy about 10 years old. Seth kind of laughs about it and, and Joe just is hardened. There's not a feeling of remorse. And that night of him drugging and that happening leads to a morning where he receives this note. And the only thing that says on the note is just a time, 1130. This leads him to be sitting in this Kansas field at 1130 when a new arrival with a bag over their head appears, which he shoots the person, takes the silver, goes, gets more coffee and talks more French with Beatrix. And we start this, pardon the term, but we start this loop with him of showing what his day in day out consists of and seems to me in that time coupling all of that with this growing sense of being worn down he seems like it's getting to him and again this is something which it's done in the montage but it's really fleet and it's a bunch of bold readable images that it actually comes off cool unlike a lot of montages which sort of seem cheesy and a lazy way to get information across And we don't know how many days this is really supposed to cover, whether it's a week or a few weeks or a month or whatever it is. Like we, This is what everything is. And within that time period as well, we see images of him seeing more people close their loops. And so it's building this sense of, you know, one day, Joe, your day will come, which potentially feeds into that, hey, this is eating at me feeling that we're getting off of it. The closing of the loops and the shooting of the people in the field however long we've been watching this montage, come together immediately after that when Seth, remember Seth, who is uh, Paul Dano's character, knocks on Joe's window in the middle of the night and things are not going well for Seth. The knock is great, actually. Uh, When I first heard it, I thought that sounds like an automatic weapon fire. But no, it's uh, Seth at the window who comes in. Seth unusually does not have a nice cornfield that he gets to shoot people in. He basically is in a boxed-in, urban, empty lot. And... Seth is freaking out. He says, you know, I was out doing my job and this one guy comes up and he starts to sing. And it's a song that he remembers. It's a song sung by his mother when Seth was a boy. So Seth curiosity gets the best of him. He pulls off the hood. He recognizes that it's his old self. Which you're not supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like a prime directive of loopers, right? Is don't take off the mask. I'm forgetting exactly how this happens, but basically Seth is kind of dumbfounded and his target gets away. His target runs and flees, which they describe as letting your loop run, which remember, you know, it makes things a lot more complicated than messy. The people in the future don't get their job done and you've got this alternate you running around doing who knows what to maybe mess up the future. And of course, your current bosses uh, in 2044 are pissed off because you haven't done your job. So Seth's in a world of trouble. Oh, and he says that his future self has described that in the future, there's going to be this super duper crime boss called the Rainmaker, who all these legends about. And the Rainmaker is responsible for all these loops being closed now. That's why there's an epidemic. And this picture of the future of all the loops being closed, of the Rainmaker, 
and of generally things getting worse in the future, not better. It's all going to buttress what's going to happen for the rest of this film and, and the, the reasonings why everybody does what they do. Keep Rainmaker and the rest of that in, in your mind for a little bit. But needless to say, neither of them are supposed to have this information. Seth has let his loop run and has let his loop have a cigarette before he ran and, you know, just really couldn't kill himself in that way. And then he has done the extra harm of going to his buddy and not only telling him about the future, but leading basically everybody who was after Seth to Joe's door. And here they come. There's a knock on the door and Seth has to go hide. Well, actually, first Seth has to convince Joe. Joe's uh, stash of silver is underneath a rug on a door. Well, let's talk about the stash of, a- of silver, though, because we haven't, we haven't mentioned that yet. Like you said, there's a rug on the floor. Under the rug, there's a hidden room or hidden safe. Joe is stashing a lot of his silver. He's put it away. It's underground. And later on, I sort of get the sense that maybe that's not what you're supposed to do, but uh, right. that is what he's doing. Where do we have uh, to hide Seth? Well, we have in under the floor in the safe with the silver bars. And so we lock him in there and we pull the rug over top of it. And Joe goes to answer the door and answers the door to a character who is going to come to play a big part in this whole mess that has happened with the unfortunate name of Kid Blue. Thank you. This is one of, you know, Brian Johnson's choices that doesn't really work for me I, because people keep talking about Kid Blue, Kid Blue. And it's sort of like trying to make fetch happen for me. It just seems so <laughs> forced. And I wonder if maybe they did it because there's a lot of sad boy energy running through this movie. Kid Blue and Joe both are, shall we say, emotionally immature in a lot of ways, particularly at this point in the movie. But Kid Blue, I think he sees himself as a badass because he's a gat. He doesn't have a blunderbuss. He's part of the the special crime wing that has gats, which are targeted. Let's define a few things here for people. Let's start with the term gat. A gat is used in this movie to mean a couple of different things. A gat is meant in the sense that I would say gat or might have in the 90s, which is a pistol. The people that hold those pistols who are not loopers who have blunderbusses, people who hold those pistols are generally referred to as gats, right? So you're referred, referred to by your gun. They're sort of the enforcers of the crime syndicate rather than the cleaned up crew. Yeah, Yeah. exactly right. And Kid Blue, who we should mention, is played by an actor named Noah Sagan, who I think joins Joseph Gordon-Levitt in having been in every Ryan Johnson movie. I think those two, including the short films, both of them have been in. So we'll double check that and see if that's true. But I think his character, that name, I agree with you, it doesn't work for me. It feels to me like a name he has given himself. A, and B, has given himself because he makes this big deal, he will in a while, about the pistol and how great he is with a pistol and whatever. It feels very Billy the Kid. And so it feels like something, maybe a name that he has given himself just because, you know, that's how he sees himself and everybody else calls him that because he's a twerp and it's a way to, I don't know, make fun of him or something. I don't know, but I I sort of read it that way. That's interesting because the character of Abe later will sort of address him as Kid Blue and in a way sort of he doesn't quite take it as seriously. And Kid Blue does have He's the sort of person who would give himself a nickname to bolster his cred or so what he thinks would bolster his cred. Kid Blue is here for a reason. Kid Blue is here obviously looking for Seth. He's looking for Seth on behalf of someone named Abe, who we have not met yet. But Abe seems to be, by the way they talk about him, the big boss. Joe claims, I haven't seen Seth. I don't know where he is. Couldn't tell you. And so Kid Blue takes Joe to go see Abe and both of them leave Seth down under this trap door with one of the gats there to guard the apartment so Seth can't escape while they're gone seeing Abe. Kid Blue winds up taking Joe back to, I believe, La Belle Aurore, where Kid Blue tries to show off his gat handling skills and actually messes up while he's doing so. 
and gets angry at Joe because Joe makes a reference to him shooting himself in the foot. Kid Blue stands up and very dramatically aims at Joe when a door swings and hits him in the head. And the person who comes out is Abe, who says something like, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot again. And he's already uh, he's been bragging about how gats are for accuracy and blunderbusses are for morons who can't be accurate. And here's a, here he is a guy that shot off his own foot. Abe, we should say, is the character that is played by Jeff Bridges. And Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. Right. Bridges, Daniels. Yes. I'm going to make sure I get the right one. We love you, Jeff Bridges, but you're not in this movie. You're not in this movie. I'm sorry. The dude is not here. No. So, yes, Jeff Daniels opens the door. He's the guy that gets things done. He's the boss somehow. He's in charge. And we find very quickly that he is not of this time, even though he is the boss, that he has been sent back in time by the future mobsters. Okay, stay with me, everybody. That He's sent back in time by the future mobsters, the ones who are sending back the people to be shot by the loopers, to basically keep an eye on the loopers. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah he's like a middle manager. Yeah, he's a, he's a middle manager. And the bosses are all 30 years away, though. So he gets the job done, and he's like, well, what else am I going to do? He basically becomes a crime lord uh-huh. of Kansas City 2044. And they mention that it, for him, it's a one-way ticket. So it seems in this movie possible to go backward in time, but not forward in time. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but on the other hand, why would they say it's a one-way ticket if everybody knows you can't go forward in time? I guess maybe you could go farther back I don't, I, I could if you, you had the technology, <laughs> which you might know from... uh, Yeah, he's stuck here. He's He's a man out of time. Whatever the reason, yes, he is stuck in this time period. So there you go. That's why Abe is here. Abe seems to like Joe. We get the impression that there is something about Joe that he does like. But even though he likes Joe, he has a bigger problem in the form of Seth that he's pretty sure Joe knows everything about and can help him solve. Yeah, obviously, when you go see Abe, it's a big deal. And... Another pin of this scene about Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the character who he plays and who character is supposed to resemble. But um, the thing about Abe is Abe says, I found you when you were a kid on the street, basically. You had nothing. I set you up. I put a gun in your hand. Essentially, he says, I saw what you could be, but what you were going to be. And I changed that. So even though there's this menace going on, Abe is doing a lot of help for us, for the audience, that he has essentially made Joe what he is right now. Yeah. And the phrase I think that gets used is, I gave you something of your own. Yeah. And he basically levels with Joe and says, look, I know you know where Seth is. I know that you have been stashing away your silver bars. I know you think you're going to go overseas and you're going to retire and you're going to go speak French, which, by the way, don't go to France, go to China. And uh, Joe fights him. No, I'm going to France. No, 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 no. Trust me. I'm from the future. Go to China. We get this whole kind of fun conversation with them, but it really comes down to, you know that I know. And so let's just figure this out. And I'm going to tell you what the deal is here. You can either give up Seth, your friend, to me because he's made a boo-boo and we need to take care of that. Or you can give up half your bars of silver and it's going to take you that much longer to get where you want to go. And that's the decision that's put in Joe's hands. And he makes the not inconsiderable point. He's like, do you really want to have your life kneecapped for Seth? Which is a pretty unfeeling thing to say. On the other hand, though, Seth did come to him unwisely and depended on the kindness of, I, I don't even know if they're friends, like friendly business associates. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's kind of a heartbreaking moment because Joe says, 
well, if you get him, are you going to kill him? And Abe is like, no, 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 we're not going to kill him. This time travel stuff, it fries your brain like an egg, but we don't want to kill him because that would just mess up whatever time continuum there is. He says, we don't want to kill Seth. We do, however, want to kill future Seth. Future, yes, Seth, future yeah. Seth is a problem. Future Seth is running around. That's what we really need to take care of, which is why we need to find Seth. So give up, Seth. You won't lose half your bars. Everybody wins. And basically, Joe gives up Seth. And I think the last line of the scene is Abe saying, call the doc. Remember that line, by the way. That line came and I thought, mm, I don't know what that means. I guess we'll find out. And trust me, we're going to find out on this one what, mm-hmm. call, what call the doc means. Because immediately after Joe gives up Seth and Seth we assume in turn gives up old Seth or wherever that may, you know, whichever direction he may have gone or gives whatever help he can give. Old Seth, played by an actor named Frank Brennan, he's on the run. He's out at a train yard at the edge of town. And it looks like old Seth may climb this fence and get on the train and and hop the train to freedom, except when he begins to climb the fence, he notices something on his own arm. And what he notices first is an arrow that has been carved into his wrist. It's like he suddenly got this scar that just appears. And when he reaches up to climb the fence, the cuff falls back and it's keep pulling down that cuff because there's more. And this was cool. There are things in this movie that work for me and there are things that don't work for me and things that I think are original and things I don't think are original. And we'll talk about all that as we go along. This is something that I I thought was pretty original. And we'll talk about how it develops, but the sending of messages to a person by carving it into their body. So as the sleeve comes down, you know, the arrow points basically to look what's under your sleeve. Old Seth pulls the sleeve back and on the inside of his arm has been carved the words be at 75 Wire Street in 15 minutes. But he doesn't do that immediately. Not immediately. It takes a little bit of convincing. He reaches up to climb the fence and, oh, my pinky, it's gone. Yeah. And this is just horrifying because the pinky goes, just vanishes. And then another finger vanishes and another finger vanishes. And he realizes, okay, I'm not going to be able to get over this fence. I really don't have a choice except to try to get to this place in 15 minutes, which is kind of a tall ask since they have no idea where he is. What if there's traffic? What if there's Um, traffic? Right. This is good and bad at the same time to me. This thing right here. The carving is cool. The disappearing of the stuff, maybe a little less so, but still it develops the scene. It does feel like somebody took Memento and the Polaroid from Back to the Future and kind of mushed them (laughs) together into... Into a scene, and that kind of is what this feels like. But then what makes it work as its own thing is it escalates beyond the fingers. But again, you could argue even there, it's like, how is he going to get anywhere when his foot disappears? And his nose. You you can get somewhere without a nose, but (laughs) it's hard. Like, basically... It's a race against time where old Seth is trying to get to 75 Wire Street. And this is all very quick. And it's really strong imagery that carries you over without necessarily asking these questions on first viewing. But how is he supposed to get 75 Wire Street if they're basically hobbling him more and more as the minutes go by? But he makes it. He doesn't really question the message. He just has received instructions. And I don't know if he thinks he's giving them to himself or, you know, why he's following these directions. But he does and finds his way to 75 Wire Street, basically pulling himself along with, uh, you know, one leg and no tongue and no fingers. He stumps at this point, but he gets himself to the address that he has been told to go to, gets right to the door 
And upon doing so, the door swings open. Standing in the door is Kid Blue with his gat. And behind Kid Blue is the explanation for why Abe had said, call the doc. Because Paul Danoseth is essentially on life support. He is on an operating gurney and all the things that have been happening to old Seth have been happening to Paul Dano Seth at the same time. And it's such damage that he's not going to be able to be kept alive without all kinds of machinery. So every time they are cutting off one of Paul Dano Seth's fingers, it's disappearing from future Dano. It's weird and it's kind of different. And I don't know if I've seen something exactly like that. Doesn't really matter for old Seth, because as soon as the door opens and we see all of that, Kid Blue aims the gat at old Seth's head and boom, old Seth is dead. It's an upsetting sequence. I have to admit that really hits me. And I guess maybe they do it so that old Seth shows up and he's easier to dispose of as opposed to just chopping him up and leaving him wherever he is. Here's where we get to time travel stuff. So if young Seth is on this gurney and has had all of his limbs cut off, then they're keeping him alive for 30 years that way so that old Seth can reflect those things. I get lost there a little bit in the mechanics of it, but that seems to be what's implied, right? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, actually, if you think they make good on keeping Paul Dano alive. And I, I would think so, because that's no small amount of effort for what they do. Kind of the way I think about the loops in this movie is that they're constantly going to be treading the same ground unless somebody does something drastically different. So the timeline that we're looking at, once they get around to the part in 30 years, it won't look the same as it did before, but it fries your brain like an egg. Exactly. And I I appreciate the Abe character saying that up front because it's basically giving permission to the audience to get confused. And that is a nice thing to get from a movie saying, don't worry your sweet little head about it. We're going to confuse the shit out of you. And that's going to be fine because we all feel that way in the movie. We're all in this together. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard enough to write a movie, to direct a movie. To actually come up with an airtight way that time travel is going to work is maybe a little bit of an edge. And frankly, if you're doing that, you probably want to read some book on quantum mechanics or something like that. You don't go to a movie to say, I I want to see the mysteries of time unlocked unassailable way. What I do appreciate, though, about Ryan Johnson and this film is that they go to extra effort to establish as clear of rules as they can for how everything is supposed to work so that we at least buy into the concept, even if at times we get a bit confused, maybe they get a bit confused about how things play out in different timelines or how things would have, we all get the basics of it. And so therefore we're able to excuse a few of the things maybe that come after. Yeah. And he's a strong enough filmmaker that you might not understand, but you believe and you get swept along. And again, that emotional being swept along, I think is really why people go to the movies or at least this movie rather than to a Ted talk or something like that. Okay. So Joe has given up Seth which has resulted in Seth ending up on a table with no limbs left and with old Seth being dead. And Joe is not feeling great about that. And so he has found a way to have some time with Susie, who he wasn't able to have some time with before, and they are in bed together. But Joe is not in a place to want to fool around or do anything else. He tells her, you know, tonight I basically betrayed my friend for some silver. I'm Judas and wants to do something beneficial, I think, to make himself feel better or to make the world better because he feels like he's made the world worse. And so offers her half of his silver so that she can go take 
her kid and go raise him right and not have to live this life anymore. But really, that isn't Susie's bag. Susie basically says, you know, I'm a working girl and you're okay and everything. We've got a wonderful business relationship, but let's kind of keep it there. I like making my own money. And she says, you know, money comes with strings. And so I don't want strings. And Joe doesn't want to fool around. So what they settle on is Joe saying, I have this memory of my mother, of her running her fingers through my hair. And so that is what Susie does for him, is runs her fingers through his hair and basically makes him feel safe. Which is kind of uh, something, again, I didn't pick up on the first time, but not only is there a lot of mom imagery here, but that kind of gets conflated with some of the the more romantic uh, relationships with women. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I noticed that a, too. Yes. <laughs> not necessarily in a, in a gross, sick way, but in a kind of curious way, it I'd say. Curious. If you look, you'll find it. That is oh, true. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. definitely there. In the moment, it gives Joe what he needs, which afterwards he goes home, checks the safe where he last left Seth, and obviously Seth is gone. There is no Seth left there, but there is some Seth blood left in there. And so we get the implication being that Seth has been harmed. Blood on the silver bars. After he checks the bars, after he finds the blood, we get a brand new day. And that next day finds him exactly where we have found him before, which is waiting out in this field and checking his watch and listening to his French and holding his blunderbuss and everything that he has done in the movie thus far that we understand is his daily routine. The problem here is that the routine gets broken for the first time and not by him. His mark, his uh, person that he is supposed to kill is late. And that hasn't happened for us before and seems not to have happened for him either. And when the person does materialize, the person does not have the bag over the head. And the person looks like top build Hollywood superstar Bruce Willis. <laughs> Bruce is on his knees as if he is supposed to be shot, but he is not wearing the mask. And so we get to see him for a moment, which, you know, is a little bit shocking to us, having seen everybody with a bag up to this point. It's certainly shocking for Joe, shocking enough that Joe hesitates and doesn't immediately fire like he's fired immediately on everybody else who's come through which gives an open door to Bruce to turn and run, or at least try to turn and run. Do you think he knows who the Bruce Willis characters at this point? Because there's the cutting back and forth between the eyes. And if you've wondered why Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they've made his eyes look somewhat different. I think they're trying to make them look like Bruce Willis's eyes. Yeah, whether they recognize that yet or not, I don't know. There seems to be some spark of recognition, but the confirmation will come in a minute because Bruce, for now, stands up, turns around, tries to run. Joe kicks back into gear. Holy crap, this is my job. Fires the blunderbuss and hits Bruce in the back. Bruce falls. Tearing the, the pack. And Tear, tearing it's not the pack silver and bars this time. Yeah, he, run, he, he runs gold. over and looks and it's gold bars in the back of this, which then confirms for him, I just shot myself. Somewhere in the midst of all this chaos of, we'll call him Old Joe now. So Old Joe turning around and being shot from behind. It hits all the gold bars. It doesn't damage Old Joe at all, which means he's able to stand up and turn around and grab a gold bar and basically throw it at his younger self, at, at Joe, at Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Beans him on the forehead. Beans him on the forehead and knocks him out. And how he's doing all this movement with that much gold bar strapped to himself, I don't know, but the cardio required to get in that kind of shape must be immense. Uh, you'd find it in yourself, I think, if you were in that situation. He knocks himself out. 
Joe, so we're going to start referring to people as Joe and old Joe, just like we had Seth and old Seth. So Joe wakes up a little later. He's been clobbered and has blacked out. He wakes up and now instead of daytime, it's nighttime. So he's been there a little while. Old Joe is gone, but Joe has a note that has been tacked to him that says hop a train out of town and in big capital letters, run. Luckily, Joe is smart enough to know that he's in trouble because he has let his loop run just what happened with Seth. And he has the foresight to smash his cell phone, essentially. And what do you need when you've got to get out of town and set up somewhere else? Dinero. So he goes back to his apartment where, as you know, we've had the floor safe. But unfortunately, he also finds a lit cigarette there, which indicates somebody It's not only been there, but they're probably coming back. They're not done with what they're doing there. Because nearly all of his silver is now gone. Or at least a good good solid half of it's missing. They're there basically cleaning him out. And he has discovered that this is happening. We find out real quickly who's doing this to him because they walk through the door and there is Kid Blue and another one of the Gats here to finish the job. Kid Blue comes in first, actually. And Joe manages to run, get Kid Blue into the safe and close the safe door. So he's locking Kid Blue there. And interestingly, Joe is trying to sort of reason with him. Joe's thing is, I'm going to get old Joe and I'm going to set everything right with Abe. And then presumably I can have my life back. To which Kid Blue basically shoots through the floorboards to try to get Joe. It doesn't seem like a logical thing to argue about either. Like we've met Abe. We know that Abe is not really the person to mess with. But I guess in that moment, it's it's yeah. the sort of begging for your life moment where you'll try anything and you're hoping the Kid Blue relays the message appropriately after you have let him out of the safe where you have crushed his hand and put him inside. Unfortunately, there is the other guy who comes in there and um, has the very accurate gat, which yeah. he is trying to shoot Joe with. Joe essentially runs out the window to the fire escape, but he slips and falls and lands on a dumpster and blacks out. Yeah, and I don't think we even make it to the dumpster on that one. We just see basically that there's his own blood on the ladder that his hand can't keep a grip on. He falls and we're off into black wondering what in the hell happened to Joe. Yeah. All of this so far up to this point is even though we're in a time travel movie, even though we've got a lot of setup and a lot of rules and different worlds that we've been living in and we have to learn all of this and catch up, everything that we have experienced to this point chronologically makes sense for the most part. I'm able to follow, I say you, me, I'm able to follow this as a narrative up until this point. It is right now, after we come out of this blackout, that I had a problem. I can help you. Should we cover that now or should we cover it when we come back from a break? Let's cover it when we come back from the break because it's definitely a break in the narrative. We'll get people to uh, listen to all our sponsors before we come back and help them out. All none of our sponsors. Please listen to all none of our sponsors. But hey, if you want to be one, let me know. I'll put you right here and we'll talk about more when we get back from this break. Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, 
they could know about you too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. That's right. You're listening to Subgenre. We are talking about the movie Looper from 2012. And I am here with Steve Baumgartner calling in from Los Angeles to say, hey, Steve, it's Looper. Are you keeping up in your own brain with this? I, I'm struggling. Um, I'm doing okay, but it took a little bit of work. You know, I wanted to make sure that I had things fairly well down before I spoke with you and all the ships at sea about this. Truthfully, this is why I have guest hosts on is so that my my brain only has to partly work and then somebody else's brain can partly work and then together we make a whole person. Now, is this movie harder or easier than tomorrow I will we'll wake up and scald myself with tea? Oh, this is so much easier so far. So far. <laughs> we'll, we'll see in discussing it whether it remains that way, but nothing Nothing is harder to discuss than that movie so far in my life. Um, Everybody, if you're somebody who you're listening to this because it's a title you recognize, go ahead and give a shot to that other episode because it is a movie I'd never heard of. And now I kind of want to import the Blu-ray from the UK just to see it. (laughs) And that would be uh, season three, episode four that we're talking about. Tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea. Go listen to it and you will thank me or not. All right, let's get back to talking about our future presentation. (laughs) We left with a bit of a cliffhanger, and it had to do with jump cuts and times and things that I didn't understand, and you, Steve, were about to enlighten me on what the hell I missed and why it makes sense to you, maybe. So tell me. Okay, I'm sort of cheating because remember I said the way that I thought about this is that these loops are going to always go around. Uh, The same thing is going to happen over and over and over again, unless somebody makes a drastic step. And the cliffhanger was that Joe falls off the fire escape and picture goes black. Then you go back to the way that we originally saw with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis pops up. But is Bruce Willis wearing his hood at this time? He is. So what this is, is we see the Joseph Gordon-Levitt shoot the hooded Bruce Willis, get his gold bars, And then the movie shows what happens over the next 30 years again in the montage in which he goes to China. He finds this woman and it goes up to the point where in 30 years he's captured by the Rainmaker's goons and his wife is killed. So what we're seeing here is basically old Joe's story previously, how he got to this point 30 years ago. In the way the loop regularly happens, he always has the hood on and he kills himself and things go according to plan. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing starts 30 years, shall we say, before the events of the movie. Only now we're seeing how the Bruce Willis character got to where he is at this point in the story, or at least up to when he went back in time without the hood. Okay, I think I'm with you. I understand and I don't understand. The 30 years that we follow, it really is kind of interesting of an evolution of Joe. So in year one, as Joseph Gordon-Levitt is gathering up his silver and he's heading out to Shanghai. And in year three, he's still hanging out in Shanghai. Um, By year six, he's still there and you can tell his money is running low. And there's a switch that's made in the middle of the montage to where Joe becomes old Joe. So now we're looking at Bruce Willis and he is out of money and so now is out criming 
again and doing terrible stuff in the middle of Shanghai by year 23. Oh, sorry, year, year 23, I guess, is when we make the switch and get over to Bruce Willis. And then it's after he becomes Bruce Willis that he meets this woman in Shanghai in the middle of one of his jobs who is played by, I'm terrible at pronouncing Mandarin. Maybe you can do it for me. Q-I-N-G and then X-U as the last name. I think it'd be Ching-Zu. Ching-Zu. But, but I, I'll I, take I, yours I, over I, mine on that one. That, that one I don't know. But he meets her and by year 25, they're in love, they're married, and so it shall be for uh, Bruce Willis at that point until we get to year 30. You know, you were talking about things that don't work for you in this movie. And one of the things that stands out for a sore thumb is that is one ineffective looking flirtation scene where basically, uh, and this all happens very quickly. Again, a lot of images which are just held for the right amount. They grab your attention and they move on. There's a fight going on in slow motion and Bruce Willis sees this beautiful woman and who she takes off her hood and he kind of like makes this face at her uh, like he's interested in her and I don't know if the face worked better when Bruce Willis was a younger man but it's like kind of a smug leer maybe that's why she responds by giving him the finger yeah but it works apparently because the next thing you see they're smoochy in bed the performance I don't think goes on the highlight reel I think you're right about that do I buy that the little face which results in a finger being given to him can two years later result in two people being married and together. I didn't really question that. And maybe that is the magic of the filmmaking here. Mm -hmm. I'm not given enough to question, right? I have the first moment they meet and then I have the end result years later. I don't have the explanation of how one became the other. And I've been given permission at the beginning of the movie for everything not to make sense. And so could it have been done in a more clear way? Yes. Did it need to in order for me to move forward with the movie? No. I think it's very clear, but I think you're absolutely right that because the movie is just on rails, you don't question it. But I think you not do yet. look at it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you do look at it and, and sort of say, that is just a really awkward pickup. It does result in year 30. So we know that 30 years later that Bruce Willis, that old Joe, is married to this woman who is the love of his life. And they are what appears to be retired in a cottage somewhere in China. As they are watching TV, or I guess maybe as she is watching TV, there's a crawl at the top of a news channel. The only word that we can pick out on the crawl, because it's in English, is the word rainmaker. Well, we've heard that word before. Right. We heard that in the future there is this person called the Rainmaker and they're causing all kinds of problems. Well, apparently this is when that is happening. A little while later from that, we've got Joe looking at some string of numbers that's written on his hand. I couldn't tell if it was tattooed on his hand or if it was, you know, written on his hand, whatever it may be. We don't know what they mean. But in that moment, before we can figure out what they mean, the door bursts open and here comes all those pesky gats into his house. I don't think we see at this point what happens after that. I think that comes later. Right. What we do see is that they are taking him away from the house and that the house is on fire. The house is burning. Yeah. We don't really see what got him to that point, but we do know that out of the house he goes and they take him to some facility. It's an industrial facility. They cover up his head. Oh, wait, we recognize that move. Um, they zip tie his hands. Oh, wait, we recognize that move. And then they kneel him in front of, we're led to believe it is the time machine. It is the time machine. 
but basically just looks like a large oven you'd make cheese its or something in. You know, it's an industrial <laughs> oven. It's like a bathosphere or it's like a, it's, it's a big round thing. I, I just said an oven. It's a turbine. It's not fancy. It's no. an industrial piece of equipment. And we also learned that uh, apparently these three guys aren't really the best at using zip ties because Joe manages to free himself uh, when there's only one guy on him, beats the crap out of the three and decides that he is going to jump into the cement mixer or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, zip tie technology has not improved in 30 years. And send him back in time without the cover on his head. And that's when he goes back. And that brings us to the moment where he meets the character who we have called Joe at the beginning of the movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yes. So this whole 30-year montage has been how old Joe went back to the past. Before he willingly climbs into the time machine, we're given just a hint of motivation for him, a vision of his wife, who he believes is in danger. And so he's got to go back and deal with this in the past somehow. And so that's why he climbs into the cement mixer and off he goes. And uh, once he's back, we see him, you know, from a different angle, whipping the gold bar at Joseph Gordon-Levitt, getting away. And we see what he does once he has split from JGL. As younger Joe is laying unconscious in the field, you know, before we had kind of gone to black and woken up with him when it was night. This is old Joe now, what he does in the meantime, which is he has stolen the truck that Joe had shown up with and finds a place to hide. And the place that he finds to hide is sort of out in the middle of really what you might call a skid row, right? It's it's where all the people who've been living on the street, this is where they were. This is where we were in the beginning of the movie, really, whenever Paul Dano's bike was about to be stolen. Generally the same area. We know the purpose of this very quickly because our old Joe, who is concealing himself behind a car in this alley, wherever he is, peeks around the car and sees concealed behind the car in front of him, his younger self, younger Joe, hanging out outside his own apartment, preparing to go inside. And as a matter of fact, upon a rewatch, I realized that the first time we see this scene, when we're with the Joseph Gordon-Levitt version of young Joe, you can actually hear there's a noise behind him, which now turns out to actually be old Joe. As who's oh, is that right? Oh, that's cool. That. Yeah. Old Joe does not stop Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He basically says he's stupid. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt goes into the house and before too long comes out the window and it's the fire escape. And old Joe tries to shoot the gat who is after young Joe. But fails. I think the gun, he's out of bullets, so the gun locks or something. And he's trying to shoot him with a gun he's taken away from some other goon who was waiting outside the apartment in a little golf cart, like a little electric car thing he's hanging out in. He kills the guy inside, takes his gun. The golf cart's going to come back into play. This is planning and payoff again. So just remember that that thing exists. So old Joe finds Joe, who's fallen off fire escape. He's landed on a parked car. And old Joe has a weapon now because he's killed a guard, killed a goon, and taken the weapon. And he manages to kill the guy that is chasing Joe onto the fire escape. And our young Joe seems dead. That's kind of where we leave things off. And we cut back to Abe at the club who is Mm. directing this, you know, citywide search for both Joe and for old Joe. So we have another situation like Seth. And Kid Blue tells him, look, I messed things up before, but I can fix this one. This will become a recurring thing with Kid Blue, that I can do it right this time. And Kid Blue is totally like weepy about this almost. I mean, he's not crying, but he's got that whole kind of, please let me prove myself to you, dad, kind of vibe going on. And Joe, okay, so who we thought was dead, Joe, who fell a fire escape, who old Joe took off the parked car. Joe wakes up. He isn't dead. 
He wakes up, but he doesn't wake up where he fell. He wakes up out by this train yard that we've established before. Remember the one where old Seth was going to get on a train? He wakes up by the train yard. Well, does he go getting on a train? No. Joe doesn't want to be on the train. Joe wants to be back in the action and back where he belongs in the city. So basically, we're establishing geography of where this train yard is because we see him stand up and turn around and, oh, look, the giant city of Kansas City. And he heads back mm. into the city to go get back in the middle of the action. And meanwhile, old Joe goes to the library. He goes to the library. Sure. And Googles or whatever the numbers on his hand and comes up with a printout of a map with three different points on it. Which are labeled by him by hand such that we understand that these are residences. We don't know why he's got that, but he does have them. Okay, he's written on a map, but something else is writing at the exact same time. And this seems a little familiar. He sees that there's an arrow appearing on his wrist in scar formation, which it says B-E. And we've seen this happen before. It actually says B-A-T. Yeah, B-A-T. Like like the last one said B at 75 Wire Street in 15 minutes. He's got the start of a very similar message, B-A-T. We don't get let known where he's supposed to be at and in how much time because we immediately then get out of that instance and we are back in the field. Our old Joe, you know, and I'd say back in the field, not really back in the field where the tarp is, but really in the middle of Kansas, in the middle of corn. Remember that diner that Joe would go to and speak some French and eat breakfast and whatever? Well, old Joe shows up at the diner and discovers that young Joe is already there and waiting. And what was the secret code word to get him there? The Beatrice. B at. Yeah, the B at on his arm was not B at a place. It was the first four letters of the word Beatrix, which we remember was the waitress that he has been practicing his French with and that old Joe was able to figure out and get to the right place. And that apparently young Joe carved on his own arm in order to get him there. This kind of bothers me. Why does old Joe go back to the diner? And how does young Joe know that this is going to work? And it's one of the things, because the movie is so confidently directed, that we know that you can carve and scars will appear. And we're conditioned to be scared. It's like, well, when this happens, you better get to the place because you're in trouble. But I don't know that it makes sense for either character, really. It makes sense a little bit to me for old Joe, because old Joe, a couple of things. Number one, he's just carried this dude who may have been dead that we as an audience thought were was dead and that his younger self he's carried him all the way out to a train yard and now the guy's not in the train yard anymore and is somewhere else and is kind of telling him where he is so he's been basically invited and that to me gives at least some instance the other is that he's lived a life he's lived 30 years or whatever and has this need, which he will express in this scene to tell his younger self what a moron he is and maybe fix your life up, do things correctly, because one of these days you're going to meet somebody that's going to change you and you're going to become a different person. That's funny you should say that because I was thinking to myself, they really don't have a lot of fascination with seeing this past or future version of themselves. It seems like old Joe, you know, just doesn't want young Joe to wind up seeing the woman who becomes his wife, wants to make sure that doesn't happen. But I don't think he's going to kill young Joe. Wait, back up. Old Joe doesn't want him to meet the lady who's going to become his wife. Right. Because when when they have their conversation at the diner, young Joe even says, show me her picture. Let me know her name. I meet her. I'll stay away from her and she'll be fine. You know, I won't ruin her life. I didn't read it that way. And maybe that's because I've only seen it the once. I had read it as old Joe 
in terms of the watch, which we haven't even gotten to, to describing that, but there's this part in the discussion to where they both have a pocket watch, right? We established this. And old Joe looks at his pocket watch and inside his pocket watch, he has a picture of this lady, of this wife that he's going to have and doesn't want younger Joe to see it. And the reason he gives younger Joe is young Joe says to him, show me the picture of her. I'll make sure to never meet her in the first place. And that way, everything will be fine. And older Joe doesn't want that to happen because he lo- he wants to meet her. He wants to have the life with her. That's the thing he, he really wants for himself. And so the reason he doesn't want younger Joe to see the picture is so that younger Joe doesn't mess it up. And maybe I read that the wrong way. But to me, that sort of made sense in some way because there is this discussion about how there's only one kind of person. And that person is the person who looks out for themselves and what they want. And that's how younger Joe looks at the world. And that, to me, sort of matched that. But maybe I'm wrong. Hmm. Maybe you're not. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> Who can say, uh, really? Yeah. Ryan Johnson. Yeah, Ryan Johnson. Um, because I do believe that he's thought this through. I also don't know why young Joe thought carving himself up is going to bring back old Joe. It works as a movie gimmick. It's cool. It's a callback. And oh, wow, isn't that neat? But in terms of effectiveness, could you have found a more effective way of making this meeting happen in the span of 30? Yeah, you probably could have figured that out a little differently. Regardless of the motivations of being here, which I think are certainly debatable, what happens in this scene is a couple of things. And one of them is that we do get some instruction on how the whole past and future thing works in that old Joe says he has memories, but his memories are cloudy as long as things haven't happened more concretely in the past. And as soon as things happen concretely in the past, then the memory solidifies. And he asks if Joe has heard of the Rainmaker. So this is confirmation of the whole, the Rainmaker actually does exist and it does happen in the future. And of course, Joe has heard of that from Seth early on in the movie. And there is a backstory given to the Rainmaker, which is really going to come into play as we go forward, which Uh, according to old Joe, is that the Rainmaker kind of came out of nowhere, that he took over all of the mob families, and that he started closing not just some loops, but all loops to the past. And so that's why everything is going haywire in the way it is and why we have to stop the Rainmaker. You think maybe that's why old Joe goes, because he thinks that maybe young Joe will give him information about the Rainmaker. Maybe. Uh, I mean, he's already down to three locations, so... It seems like maybe not the best use of his time to go out to a diner. I mean, maybe the coffee's great. (laughs) That scene ends, I think, with old Joe asking Joe if he knows what the numbers on his hand are. And I don't know that we get an answer to that from Joe. We're we're stepping ahead, but we sort of have to to describe this. Is he trying to get him to help him with the task that he's going to be doing soon so that they can team up and be a kick-ass double team to get things taken care of? That seems to be what the goal is. Yeah, see, the way they talk to each other and the way they behave, I don't believe that that is in the cards. Okay, each one is an annoyance to the other then, I guess is what we're taking away. So so it's almost like, and they're together because it's a great movie scene, but I'm not sure that it's not clear to me why either of them have managed to be there together. So this scene is a mystery, (laughs) but it does get us to something kind of concrete, which is a flash forward to the future where we see where the numbers came from, the numbers that are written on old Joe's hands. And it shows us, we're not, not given every detail, but there is some building that is under siege in the middle of a city. There is a man that is reading out these numbers over the phone to old Joe. Old Joe is on the other side writing these things down, I guess, on his hand. And we find out that these are identifying numbers somehow for the Rainmaker, that this tells him where the Rainmaker is so that he can go and take care of him in the past. And oh, by the way, the Rainmaker is in the county that they are currently in. And maybe that kind of explains the diner. 
whatever this county is, however far Kansas City County or whatever it is that they're in, expands. He knows that the Rainmaker is in this county. Old Joe explains that he is going to find him. He is going to kill him to stop him from becoming this power that he is in the future and closing everybody's loop, including his. And that's then when you get into Joe telling Old Joe, well, just let me see your photo and we'll just avoid all this to begin with. And Old Joe very makes no bones about it. He says, I'm not going to give her up. I'm going to save her. So again, he's not looking to keep cut himself out of her life necessarily as much as he wants to get rid of the thing that's going to take her out of her life when the time comes. And a little earlier in the scene, old Joe has let Joe know, look, dude, I'm you. I know that you've got a gun in your lap. And so we know very early on, like we get the Chekhov's gun in the early bit of this scene. And so we know it's going to come into play. And right now it comes into play in that old Joe realizes that this conversation with Joe is over. I got to get to what I'm doing. I got to go kill the Rainmaker and this dude's going to get in my way. And so basically kicks the gun out of his own younger self's hands, drags him out of the booth and is either going to beat the snot out of him or knock him out or take him away or do something, except for the fact that he doesn't need to, because at that moment, the door gets kicked in at the diner. So young Joe, why doesn't he, his whole thing is, I want to get rid of old Joe so that I can preserve my life. I mean, he basically says, why don't you just die? Why doesn't young Joe take him out? I mean, and maybe it is that fascination, the difficulty of shooting the older version of yourself that I'm not feeling between the two of them in their performances. It's a silly guess. Yes, but is it because they're in a public place? He can't show mm-hmm. the gun. He's hiding the gun under the table. You know, part right. of that is for Bruce Willis, but Bruce knows he already has it. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt keeps it under the table. Part of that maybe is you've got Beatrix in here. The only time he's ever shot somebody is out in the middle of the field when nobody else is around. And so he's yeah, is part of it. Pop him before that. he gets into the diner. It's a great question. It's just curiosity, probably. I, I mean, that's really yeah. if, you, if you have to find yeah. a reason, it's just I get to sit down with my older self and, and have some sort of conversation that may be worth a couple of minutes before I kill him. <laughs> you know, I don't know yeah. who can say, yeah. really. It's basically the scene that was written so that both of them would sign on to the movie because they each get a nice long scene with one another, a table scene where they can act versus running around with guns the whole time. That's my guess. It's there regardless. And it gets us to the point to where the Gats have followed one or both of them, I can't remember, to this location, kick in the door and basically just start shooting the place to hell. In fact, Joe tries to sort of be on the Gats side and getting rid of old Joe at this point. I don't get this. He grabs the core. Joe grabs the coordinates page away from old Joe. Like he manages to get out the door with the coordinates page that old Joe has just showed him that he had. Okay, so young Joe has that. But young Joe is firing at old Joe, standing on the same side of the room and hanging out with the Gats, who are also trying to do the same thing. And then once Bruce Willis takes off into the cornfields, like running away from him, Joe is running alongside the Gats, chasing him until they realize that he's there with them. And then they turn on younger Joe and go after him. It's just a weird turn of events. Because, again, it makes you think that maybe... Young Joe's idea the entire time was to get rid of old Joe, which is what we've been led to believe. And but it, young Joe it, didn't it, call the Gats. If young Joe called the Gats, they wouldn't turn and try to shoot him. They might not. <laughs> Motivations, yeah, Ryan. Let's make those a little clearer. That's all I'm asking. I'm just We're, glad it's not just me who's kind of not. a little bit like. And again, I'll, I'll say it. 
because the movie moves so well and we have certain expectations as an audience, we're not stopping and saying, wait a minute. No, that's coming. When the I'm just going with the flow thing stops and, and you start asking questions, that's coming for me. But at this moment, I'm not there yet. And I'm with you. I'm sort of flowing along with it. Hey, we're shooting at this guy. Oh, wait. No, we're not. We're shooting at me. You know, it kind of reminds me of a moment, memento where I'm chasing this chasing? guy. Who am I chasing? And he's chasing me. It's, it's one yeah. of those moments. But everybody gets chased off into the cornfields. And Joe makes his escape into the cornfields on one of these flying motorbikes and yeah. and flies his way. We'll save on that one, but flies his way <laughs> off into the cornfield and gets away, right? Gets away from the gats. So the close call, but they didn't get either one of them. We go to introduce, we've waited long enough for her, Emily Blunt. Who, we get a brand new character here that's going to have a big storyline and we don't meet her until like now. And, and the movie really does from this point shift gears. When old Joe and Joe are apart, the old Joe stuff feels like the same sort of movie, but the young Joe starts to feel more bucolic and not as pressured because they're out of the big city. They're out in the middle of farm country. They're at the farm of a woman who we come to know as Sarah, played by Emily Blunt. And Sarah is doing what seems to be her favorite pastime, which I don't know that we ever get really explained, which is chopping at a tree stump with an axe. What explanation do you need for creating wood? There was so much emphasis put on this damn stump that she was out there doing. I figured there's something hidden underneath it. There's a I, who knows. Spoiler alert. It never pays off. You know, she's got to heat her house. And, I guess. But I guess. It shows that she's a strong, independent woman. There's that. OK, so we're establishing that she can swing an axe, but it's her farm. On her front porch, this is kind of an interesting, a nice little bit of character action. She's sitting on her front porch and pretending to smoke, I guess implying that she's quitting or has quit or some or cigarettes aren't available. Yeah. I don't know. That's the feeling I got that it was like, I used to smoke and now I can't, but let's sort of go through the motions and get, it's like the diet cola of smoking. I liked it as a thing. I thought it was kind of fun. I hadn't seen that. Let's be honest. Emily Blunt is terrific. I, she's in every really yeah she sells it without it feeling like you're being sold she just does it and her evening sitting on the porch pretending to smoke thing leads into a following morning where she goes and wakes up a young child a boy who we will come to know as sid played by pierce gagnon and makes him breakfast and this kid's probably eight-ish range in the course of making the breakfast though She's looking at her kitchen window, looks out at the field and sees Joe, our younger Joe, standing at the edge of her field, which is not a welcome sight. And so she does what anybody protecting their property out in the middle of Kansas is going to do. She goes and grabs her loaded shotgun and runs out to this field and calls to him. And she's under the impression that he's a vagrant. People coming to the house, looking for handouts, looking to squat, looking to whatever is kind of a problem because it seems like she's had to do this before. Which I can imagine, given they make Kansas City look like an absolute hellhole. And yet apparently you're within walking distance of a, a single woman with a nice house in the middle of nowhere. Joe is smart enough not to stand up all at once out in the field with the woman with the shotgun. He has that piece of map that he has taken from old Joe. He's checking the coordinates. This looks like it is one of the three addresses on that. And so therefore, this could be the house of the Rainmaker, whoever that may be. You also sort of see in this moment of him being out there that he's not just squatting because he wants to squat out in the field. He's also starting to have some withdrawals. Because remember, we said 
in that first part of the movie, every other scene he's taking drugs, he's putting the eye drops in, and he has not done that for a very long time now and is starting to get the DTs. Back at the club, it's another Abe chest. It's this Kid Blue scene, and uh, it's, it's really serious. Now that Kid Blue has failed to capture young Joe when they were about two feet away from each other with weapons, <laughs> Abe says, just give me your gun. And the sad boy energy just ramps up even further. It's kind of pathetic. It is that I only just wanted your love, dad, ball player moment. And instead of embracing him and telling him, it's okay, son, don't worry about it. Abe smacks Kid Blue's hand with a hammer and breaks it. Smack is a nice way of putting it. It is a nice way of putting it. Yeah. We're back at the farm. It's nighttime. And, you know, Sarah had stood at the edge of this field and called out to whoever was out there and said, you better get away or I'm going to shoot you with my shotgun. Nobody ever came out. She went back to life. In the evening, she looks out again and notices that her barn door is open. And that was not the way it was earlier. So the implication being whoever was in the field is now in the barn. She grabs her shotgun and heads out to close it. Here's some rustling cocks the gun and out of the field comes a person in shadow and she is ready to shoot them. She has fired into the air. She has yelled at this person to stop. She has tried to get away from them and has tripped and fallen down because when you've got people in shadow chasing you, what else is there to do but trip and fall down? Uh, Sid, well, that we had met yeah, earlier. Yeah, boy sees from the upstairs window yes. what's going on. But as soon as this shadow steps out of shadow, it turns out that it is a person with a sign around their neck who is deaf and mute and looking for money. So it's a good thing she didn't shoot him. The part that I left out, too, is that, you know, she's tripped and fallen on the ground and here comes the evil shadow. Here comes Joe running out of the field to protect her and basically right. steps between her and whatever this is. And it's in that moment then that, that we get the reveal of it's not a scary person. It's not a gat. It's somebody else who is here. And that person couldn't hear the gunshot and, could, you know, all of that. And so they run off. They're not a problem anymore. The problem is that Joe is collapsing. Although he makes a great first impression on Sid. We wake up with Joe a few minutes later, a little while later, whatever it may be. And it is with Sarah resuscitating him and letting him know in no uncertain terms that she knows he's a junkie, that she knows he's going through withdrawals and that he's going to lay here on the porch and he's it's going to get better. But that's what's going on here. He's begging for water the whole time, and she hasn't bothered to bring him any water, but someone else does. That's scampy Sid. So here's what happens. The kid Sid comes down, lets Joe have a sip from his water bottle, give him the whole bottle, I think, and Joe is able to satisfy his thirst, which really doesn't sit well with Sarah, who comes and finds out that this is happening and basically tells Sid to get away from this guy. He's a drifter, and Sid corrects her. This guy ain't a drifter. His shoes are too nice. Pretty wise for an eight-year-old. I thought so, too. Uh, because he's right. It sets up, A, that Sid is caring. It sets up that Sid is a little fearless. And the third thing that it sets up, which is going to strike us as weird, and then we're going to get some explanation, is as she is putting him to bed and telling him everything's going to be okay, you get some sleep, he tells her good night, but instead of saying good night, mom, he calls her by her name, good night, Sarah. And if we had the impression up to this point that this was her kid, this shakes that impression. Not being a parent, I, I actually didn't notice it at this point. I'm kind of calloused of the soul as well. <laughs> I need a callous soul on here because as I mentioned before, I'm a mushy crier. So if I have a callous person on the other side, it just balances the earth out. Yeah. I'm the person that says, why don't they just shoot each other? Get it over with. <laughs> 
Here come, by the way, the next day through the mm. uh, farm field, more people. Here come gats, apparently, and choppers and other things that are sort of searching. I said through the farm fields. I didn't mean that. Yeah, I meant- yeah they're not in the farm field. It's, it's like basically let's break this up. And meanwhile, back in the city where old Joe is still on the run, and I believe he's starting to have trouble visualizing the woman that he loves, even though he's got a picture of her inside his watch. And also the image starts being conflated with Sarah. Does it, or do we just cut back to Sarah? I think it does. I think there's a moment of, there's a frame or, or a, you know, one shot or something in there where he's trying hard to think of the wife and we get a picture of Sarah for a second. Maybe I just imagined that, but that was the impression that was left with me. We haven't time traveled and we're having trouble remembering it's true. precise details. So I'm going to cut them some slack. He's still got the map. He's got an address though. You know, we can tell that he's heading to this address, which is not the address that young Joe is at currently. Old Joe is, is about to head to a different address. So he grabs a gun and heads to it, and we understand that he's going there to take care of whatever business he needs to take care of to get rid of the Rainmaker. Yeah. Back at the farm. Joe wakes up. Uh, he's passed out after having his sippy cup full of water last <laughs> night and wakes up in the barn. Problem is he is handcuffed to a cot in the barn, but he is in the barn nonetheless. Sid, I guess seeing from his room upstairs or wandering out there, I can't remember, but notices that Joe is awake. Let's Sarah know that. Sarah goes out to talk to him and tell him what for. And she finds Joe sitting and cleaning his blunderbuss. Makes him get rid of it. She's not going to have a gun pointed at her. He, she's the only one that's going to be doing the pointing of the guns. He tells her, she kind of asks him, I think, how are you doing? He tells her, I'm at about 30% wellness here. And she says, great, good enough. And throws him the key to his handcuffs and tells him that it's time to get off of her property. He disputes that with her, really takes control of the situation and says, no, not going to do that. I have to stay, and I'm really not afraid that you're going to kill me if I do that, because if you were going to do that, you would have done it much earlier. You wouldn't try to nurse me out of my withdrawal symptoms just to shoot me down. So he's using her niceness against her, but he is right. Yeah, although on the other (laughs) hand, things shift. They do. Yeah, she might have gotten him to 30% wellness or whatever he says he's at. And then it's like, oh, you're not going to do what I say? Okay, okay, now's the time to shoot you. But it's a good gamble on his part because... They start talking. What he says, what does he say exactly that gets her like, is it the numbers? It's the numbers. Do you you know what these numbers on this map mean or something like that? He's got the piece of map that he's stolen. He shows her the numbers on the piece of map, which they mean coordinates to him or whatever. But to her, they mean something different immediately. Something really big. And that's when she actually levels the shotgun at him and boom, she actually takes a shot. And Yeah, she does. And you think, holy crap, she just killed Joseph Gordon-Levitt because she fired like point blank at him with a shotgun. Yeah, Um, it's her movie now. It's her movie now. No, he's not dead. It's rock salt. And she explains to him, I'm not somebody who's a killer. You, You got me right there, but I have no problem harming you to defend myself and my son. Joe's trying to crawl away, even though he's been shot with rock salt. It hurts like hell, but she's getting ready to shoot him again. And then that's when Joe spills to her this line that he has given to us as an audience at the very beginning of the movie, which is time travel hasn't been invented yet, but 30 years down the line, it has. To us as an audience, that was news. To her, (laughs) it doesn't seem to be. She actually says to him, I know you're a looper. I know what loopers do. And we don't necessarily get an understanding of why she knows that, but the fact that she does know it is very interesting. While this conversation is going on, remember old Joe had grabbed a gun and was headed to an address on his piece of paper. Well, he shows up at that address 
which is a house in a row of houses that's kind of underneath a freeway overpass. And he is there outside of it, ready to go in and do whatever he needs to do, which again, we're not 100% certain what's going to happen here, but we're going to find out pretty quickly. Because there is a scampy ragamuffin who is in the backyard. Seems to me an echo of the young boy in the road previously, where it's somebody who you look at who's endangered. But in this case, well, Joe has a purpose. And yeah. what's nice is there's some intercutting back and forth between Joe at the farm and old Joe doing what he's doing. And Joe at the farm is explaining to Sarah how old Joe is on a mission hunting this person called the Rainmaker, how her house, her farm, is on his map, and that he will be coming here to do something dirty. And it is within that conversation that she takes a look at the numbers that were written on old Joe's hand and that are now written on the map or whatever and has a realization about what they are. And they mean something very personal to her. And it should be noticed that what, the reason why Joe won't leave is because he's waiting for old Joe to show up because this is one of the places on old Joe's map. And those numbers that she recognizes, she recognizes because they aren't coordinates. They are Sid's birth date and the medical code of the hospital he was born in. And so this puts a target squarely on Sid and that old Joe could come and do something to Sid. What would old Joe do to Sid now that we understand that connection? We see that now as old Joe walks into the backyard of this house. Like you said, there's a younger kid that is there in the backyard. And good Lord, this scene Old Joe just guns down this elementary school student in the backyard of this house. It's horrible. It's horrible. But in fairness, dear listeners, we don't see the child get shot. We do not. But you know what's what's happening. It's a draw upon this kid and uh, cut away. There's a bang sound. And you can tell he doesn't want, you know, there's the part of him that's obviously doesn't want to do it. But there's the bigger part of him that feels like has to do it and to save the planet or himself or his wife or whatever else and ends up taking the step and doing that. And it's a sobering moment in the film. I don't want to sound like I'm all for children being murdered in movies. Don't sound that way, Steve. I will give the movie credit for that's not pleasant, to put it mildly, but it does free up the movie in a way that there are certain movies you see that you know there are certain lines that aren't going to be crossed. And this movie crosses them in, a, I would say, a non-exploitative way. You're not excited. You're not thrilled. But the character motivations up to this point have led you to think, okay, this is a thing which, at least for this character, is going to make sense. And it's not a good thing. But in this particular story, it does fit. It's a very uncomfortable scene to watch. But like you said, it is effective. And it's made extra effective by having had this description just prior to the act of this is what will happen to Sid. And so we're able to connect it through the murder of this other kid, which immediately you see old Joe remorseful for or at least very affected by immediately after, but not affected enough that he's not going to keep doing it. That sets up for us in very clear terms. Here are the stakes if we do not protect Sid. And so that takes us back to the farm where Sarah is pulling individual pieces of rock salt out of Joe, which that's got to hurt. She wants him to protect her and Sid, but she doesn't want him to talk to Sid. (laughs) She wants Sid to stay away from him, which Sid will not do. As we saw before, Sid came down, you know, and gave him the water earlier. Sid's going to come down here a little later 
and asks Joe to come inside and sneaks him inside to the kitchen table while Sarah is sleeping to show him that he's an inventor and that he has invented something very helpful for them that will come into play. <laughs> that incredible invention is a frog. A frog light. A frog light. And also makes a little croaking sound as well. Yeah, a he's beeper. developed a beeper. Exactly. Yeah. Which they can use then to communicate with one another if there's uh, problems on the farm and he needs to come a running. So that's why Sid has done that. This shows us that Sid is a very bright kid. It Sid's mechanically minded, et cetera, et cetera. While they are sitting at the kitchen table, this is the table moment where we had old Joe and young Joe at a table. This is the young Joe and Sid moment at a table where they are sitting across from one another and having a conversation. And it's led by Sid, who is asking Joe if he kills people. And Joe, I think, cops to the fact that he does. And Sid says that he wants a gun like Joe's so that he can stop bad things from happening. Okay. That's disturbing enough that the little kid feels like he needs to do that. But we get a sense of why in that he says that, hey, you know, that lady, Sarah, that is not my mom. She's a liar. liar. She's a liar. He's really blunt about it. And when he was a baby, he couldn't stop his real mom from being killed. This kid is living a heavy life, man. And and yeah. While all of this is going on, old Joe is on the run. He's running away from the Gats who have spotted him. So that chase is continuing. And while all of that is happening, the stuff at the farm and old Joe on the run. Remember Kid Blue? Kid Blue yeah. who, who got his hand smashed by Abe, who's feeling like nobody loves him, who's feeling like nobody thinks he can do anything right. He happens to be listening to a radio and hears on the radio where old Joe is or where he's going to be, and he's got a plan. He knows that maybe he can get there before him, and this may put him back in some good graces with Abe. Will it? Who knows? But we'll talk about it when we get back. Tune in. Hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No? I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. It's subgenre. We are talking about Looper from 2012, the Ryan Johnson film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis, and Emily Blunt. And there was a lot to digest in that middle bit. I didn't think there was going to be as much as the first third of the movie, but I was wrong, Steve. There was more. The density is one of the gifts of this movie. It just keeps on giving. What I hope is as we move into the what is essentially the third act here of the film, or at least the, the third third of it, that things are going to move a little quicker because there is a lot of action that has been primed to this point. We've got a lot of information 
information that we now know, we understand motivations, we understand that things are in motion and where everybody is headed. What we don't know is how it's all going to play out. And so that is where we get as we step back to the farm, out to Sarah's farm in the middle of Kansas, where Joe and Sarah at her stump, where she is chopping on this stump for whatever reason she does that, where they are having a conversation and he gives her the little frog light that Sid has given him the night before. Says, here, I made us a communication device. Doesn't rat Sid out. He doesn't have to rat Sid out. She knows exactly who made it. Says that as they were talking, Sid did mention something kind of interesting. You are a big fat liar and that <laughs> you are you are not his mom. Can you confirm or deny that? And she has a story about it uh, to tell him. She has a party girl lifestyle in the past and she got pregnant with Sid. She had Sid and knew that she couldn't raise Sid as well as her sister who had a farmhouse could. So she basically let Sid be raised by her sister. And so Sid took to the sister as the mom. You know, Sid had mentioned that the mom was killed, but Sarah doesn't really want to talk about that right now. And she just wants Joe to stay away from Sid. You know, basically, I want him to have a regular childhood and I don't want him hanging around loopers. So I want you to protect us, but I I want you to kind of stay away from him. We get some time between her and Sid again a little while later. They're practicing math. We see that Sid is very smart and is able to do all of these different math equations, you know, his times tables. Is that a real toy? That's kind of cool. It is kind of cool. Yeah. Like a Scrabble board sort of thing with to learn your multiplication tables. They don't even teach multiplication tables anymore. So God knows if it's a real toy. In, in 2030, whatever it is, but, but yeah, it's very cool one to look at. He's good at math, but they get to one particular question, and just because he's a kid, you know, maybe it's just because he's a kid, maybe he's stubborn for other reasons, he's mad at her for her treatment of Joe or whatever it is, but he knows the answer to one of the math questions she asks. She knows he knows the answer to the question, but no matter what, he continues to defy her and answer it with the wrong number which really gets her dander up. Now, Josh, you're somebody who's spent more of a chunk of time with young children than I have. Do kids do that? Do they basically sort of, they're upset about one thing, so they're just going to sort of break down and say, I'm not playing ball with the way things are, man. You take control where you can take control. Yes. If you can't get your way in one place, you pick a place where you can get your way and you use that as your leverage to do whatever. Some kids are better at it than others. Um, And other kids probably aren't as uh, quick to anger and frightening when they get anger as our Sid is. And that's the problem here is he's upset about something. The thing that he's upset about he's acting out on the acting out is annoying her and she is it becomes epic (laughs) and she's calling him out on it which then further escalates everything and his escalation is different than your escalation and my escalation he goes red-faced he goes wide-eyed he gets very loud and starts screaming at her that she's a liar and i hate you and you're not my mom and everything that a child can think of to destroy a parent that's what this child is yelling at her, which is scary enough, but the intensity with which it is all delivered and and, and filmed yeah. and filmed and to her, just the general atmosphere of everything is so much more than what maybe a quote unquote normal child might be able to express and terrifies her so much that she runs off to hide and locks herself in a safe. I hope she doesn't lock herself in. This is a, a safe that kind of looks like it came from a 
1900s sort of thing. And it is big enough to hold an Emily Blunt. That is true. It's a Blunt safe. It seems that this isn't the first time she's done this. This, no. this was a prepared spot that she had for when she needed to go. And so she is in this spot. So we can tell that this maybe has happened before and that it is not permanent because in a little while she goes in to check on him and he's laying there and they make up and he apologizes and is a kid again. He's gotten it out of his system. Which is not uncommon for that age of a kid and kind of how things work. You know, you blow up, the energy goes away, it dissipates, and then everything is fine again, and we just forget that it ever happened. That is a thing, except for in this case, it just felt like a little bit of an extra thing going on. Not many parents put themselves in the safe when their kids get rowdy and unruly. We talked about before the break the badness that old Joe was pursuing with the first address on his map and the poor kid who got the brunt of it. And what can make old Joe even sadder than having to kill a kid he doesn't know. Oh, man. What if it was a kid he knew? What if it was that, or, or at least a kid that someone he knows knows, which is exactly what happens here, because remember, old Joe was heading to a spot that Kid Blue had heard that he was heading to, and that spot turns out to be right outside an apartment, and oh, by the way, that apartment happens to be occupied by Susie. Not only does Susie live there, remember Susie's the girl from the club who young Joe was, she was running her hands through his hair and all that kind of stuff. And young Joe had offered her half of his silver to go and take her kid and live a better life. And she said, no, thank you. This is where Susie lives. And Susie does have a kid. And this turns out to be a young girl who she carries into the apartment. And so we see here is the next target of old Joe. And old Joe doesn't seem happy about it either because it's Susie. Back at the farm, remember a little frog alarm, beep, beep, beep. The frog alarm goes off. And so this means that attention needs to be paid because at the front door of the farm, Sarah answers the door and finds someone standing in the door holding a gun. And that's someone? That's, Garrett Dillahunt. That someone is Garrett Dillahunt. Now, we don't know what Garrett Dillahunt is really there for yet. He says he is going door to door and asks the question that a lady who is living alone does not like to be asked. Are you here alone? <laughs> she has an answer yeah, for it, though. I can't remember what her, uh, what her she answer said, was. She says, I, it, my, it, I have a husband. And my that's hu right. Yeah. My husband is in town with my son, and both of them will be back soon. But it's ineffective. You know, he's uh, this guy is somebody who's very polite, but obviously not taking no for an answer and does the vacuum salesman foot in the door thing. So he wants in the house and, uh, you know, kind of insinuates it'd be real suspicious if you didn't let me into your house to search it. Yeah, but it never really says, never really establishes, I don't think, who he is. Like, he doesn't claim to be a cop. He doesn't claim to be something else. But it is the, you kind of are going to let me into the house so we can talk about this. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I kind of assumed that because she had her party girl pass and she knew who the loopers were, that she had a pretty good idea. Her shotgun is hanging behind the front door. And so you, you kind of get her looking over at the shotgun, mm -hmm. keeping an eye on it, knowing that that's where she can go if there's trouble. And so she lets this guy into the house. When she lets him in, what he doesn't realize and what she doesn't realize really is that Joe is by the back door. So he's in kind of, you remember the kitchen area where he was hanging out with Sid. He's sort of back in that area. Well, here comes Mr. Dillahunt wandering through the house, which causes Joe to have to kind of sneak from room to room and get himself out of the way before both of them come back into this kitchen area. When they are in the kitchen, he is showing Sarah photos. Here's a photo of Joe. Here's a photo of old Joe. 
have you seen either of these people? Do you recognize either of these people? And of course, she tells him, nope, never seen him before in my life, which maybe he believes, maybe he doesn't believe, probably is very suspicious about. That's the answer that you'd expect her to give either way. She smartly tries to keep him moving and out the back door, which is here in the the kitchen and says, well, you might want to check the barn. And he tells her, yeah, I already did that. I took the liberty of doing that already. Your barn is fine. What I want to see is the rest of the house. And so he wanders his way back through the house. They get themselves into the living room area. And we find out very quickly that Joe has taken refuge behind the couch. So he's back hiding behind the couch, not very far from where both of them are sitting. And I'm not quite sure if she realizes that he's behind the couch. But what she does realize is that someone else is not staying very hidden as well. And that would be Sid. And what's she going to do? She can't say, excuse me, I have to stop my son who I said was gone from coming down the stairs right now. Yeah, because she's told him the son's not there and Sid yeah. is creeping down the stairs, you know, to, trying to be quiet. But you're not going to be that quiet when you're a kid coming downstairs. So what she does really is kind of step in an opposite direction to get this guy's attention on her so that Sid can get downstairs. So Sid wanders his way downstairs, manages to get down the stairs and manages to get, I can't remember if it's all the way in the kitchen or something else. I think Joe winds up weaving through the kitchen, but Sid winds up going into this uh, door, which seems to be a closet of some type, and he's followed by Joe. And Sid manages to create some sort of diversion, throws a something or goes through the kitchen first or something, but creates a sound that causes Dillahunt to stand up and head in that direction, which buys enough time for Sid to drag Joe into this closet under the stairs and they shut the door and nobody ever knew they were there to begin with, which then allows Sarah to say, oh, it was the wind. And it turns out this is not just a closet that they're hiding in, that apparently there's some sort of underground tunnel which goes farther out into the yard around the house where Sid and Joe have a heart-to-heart. Joe lets Sid know, that guy in the house, I know that dude. It's not just Garrett Dillahunt. He's a guy named Jesse. And Jesse is a gat. And Jesse's really good, but he will go away when he doesn't find me. And so don't worry. We'll just let him do his thing, and then he'll get out of here. Talk that started at the kitchen table continues on here with Sid really questioning what happened to Joe's mom. Because remember, Sid's got a past with his mom, or who he thinks is his mom, and ask what happened to Joe's mom. Joe humors the question and says that his mom gave him up because she was a vagrant and that he was kind of taken away and and shuffled off to other places and that he sort of had this fantasy when he was younger about killing the men who took him, but he never did it. That basically uh, he started to take drugs out of loneliness and that he jumped a train and dreamed of revenge until somebody put a gun in his hand. And of course, we know that was Abe. That was Abe who gave him something of his own. This is also the moment that we mentioned earlier, Joe saying that there's really only one kind of man and that's those who care about keeping what's theirs. That is given as a way to say, here is how I think of myself. I'm really in this for me, which has been what he has been telling Sarah the entire time. Don't worry, I'm in this for me. I don't care about your family. I don't care about your kid, whatever. But it's said out loud and it's a line he's told himself and maybe believed for a long time, but we can, as an audience, sort of see that maybe there might be some chips coming out of that reasoning at this point. And that's important. That line is important with Joe setting himself up as I'm in this for myself because Sid proclaims to be the polar opposite. And this little kid says that he will do everything. He's going to make sure that nothing happens to Sarah. Nothing's going to happen to Sarah. I'm going to keep her safe. And they watch Jesse leave. The danger from him dissipates out at the farm. 
back in the city. Remember old Joe was hanging out outside Susie's apartment with terrible deed that he needed to go in and do? Well, he has been discovered and pinpointed by some surveillance video by our good friend Kid Blue. And so Kid Blue knows exactly where to go. And of course, old Joe doesn't know that. Old Joe has been sort of dragging out this second kill. That was the thing, too, I had to think about for a while was, you know, old Joe was right outside this apartment, but then Kid Blue was able to find him and make his way there. And that took a little time. So really, yeah, that you're right. That is an indication that old Joe had kind of been not exactly yeah. eager to go and do this. Oh, man, we do a lot of jumping here, but we're going to jump yeah. back to the farm. And there's a lot of cross cutting here, which again, like a lot in this movie, it goes by like a shot, but to have to describe it definitely gums things up a little bit. But don't worry, the cross cutting isn't going to stop, but we are going to bring a lot of people who are in different places closer together. So at least we're going to minimize it as time goes by. We're back at the farm at night. This is Sarah, who is in her room, in bed, alone, and we can see is thinking about being alone. Potentially what do you mean, Josh? Is potentially thinking about Joe. Well, I mean, she's always thinking about Joe. What's different about this scene? <laughs> it would be probably the length of clothing that she has on and a position of fingers on one's body would lead one to determine her thoughts might be elsewhere uh, and that it might be Joe. We know further that it is Joe because we see her sort of fighting with herself about it and then decides that she is going to grab the frog light and give old Joe a call. Beep, beep. That's the emergency signal. When she pushes the frog beeper, up he comes running. You can hear him coming up the stairs. It gives her just a little bit of time to sort of straighten the old negligee and stand in the right places in the right light. But here he comes through the door, which she immediately leaps on top of him and takes him to bed. So apparently the adrenaline of the day must be dissipated. And so therefore, here we are. Basically, her son invented a hookup app for her. So <laughs> he did. The goats. Yeah. Good job, bud. Afterwards, they are laying in bed together. She's smoking a cigarette and she is levitating the cigarette lighter. So this whole TK thing, this whole telekinesis thing comes back into play. Uh, remember, it was just used for floating quarters and trying to impress girls at clubs. Well, she can do something that others that we have seen can't do, which is levitate something a little bigger like a lighter. I do like the story she tells about how she would kind of hide it because it was a sort of thing that like guys would not want a woman to be more powerful than them. Mm -hmm. But when they would try to impress her by floating the quarters, she would hold the quarters down telekinetically. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. Yeah. Uh, she has knowledge beyond that. She tells Joe that she knows that old Joe is a loop and that Joe is going to kill himself. You know, he's going to close his loop. She knows all of that. She understands all of that. She then proceeds to give all of us the backstory of coming to see Sid, coming back to the farm, to reunite with Sid after her sister died. And she was full of regrets for abandoning him and has decided that she was going to take care of him. And even if he doesn't love her back because he doesn't consider her his mother, that she is determined to keep him safe. And so we establish then the bond on her end to Sid as Sid has established the bond to her in the scene with Joe about how he's going to protect her. So even if they don't recognize one another as mother and son, yeah. there is a bond between them. Which doesn't seem shocking to me, but you know, I think that uh, this movie has a very pure conception of motherhood and I'm here for it. I like it. In the morning, though, whenever Joe wakes up, she is not in bed. Sarah's not there with him anymore. He goes downstairs to, to his dismay, find the reason that she's not in bed is that Jesse is back and he is holding Sarah at gunpoint. Everybody is aware of everybody else's presence here. So what options does he have left? 
horse trading, basically. He offers Jesse half. Half the silver. Half the silver. You get half the silver. All you got to do is just let them go. And yeah. Jesse doesn't want half the silver. And You so, can have all the silver. All the silver. You want all the silver? Take all the silver. All you got to do is just let Sarah go. And Jesse doesn't want that either. Jesse basically says, yeah, I don't want it. And Joe wants to get right with Abe. And Jesse says, you're never getting right with Abe. Who are you kidding? I'm here to do Abe's bidding. And that's it. And once I'm done, I'm going to stay good with Abe. You will never be good with Abe again. All of this scene of, will you take this? No, I won't. Will you take this? No, I won't. All of that gets interrupted when, just as before, in the previous time Jesse was here, Sid came downstairs and managed to get downstairs and fool everybody and get out. This time, Sid comes downstairs and Jesse is aware of him coming down. And he's startled a little bit and raises his gun at Sid coming downstairs, which in turn, I think, startles Sid. And Sid Sid loses his footing. Loses his footing on the stairs, oh no, and trips and falls. We kind of enter a world of slow-mo on the farm set. We don't get to play it out yet because right that second, we jump ourselves over to old Joe, who is kicking his way into Susie's apartment to gun down her daughter, right? So that's happening simultaneously. At the farm then, so here's our intercutting, super slow-mo. Sid is continuing to fall. Sarah is running for the stairs as if to catch him. But instead of catching him, at the last second, she makes a hard left and really pushes Joe out the door and away from everything that is happening. And that is unusual to us as an audience, and we'll understand why in a second. You would think she's going to catch the kid. You would think, but it's not. And it is an incredible coincidence that at the very same time this is happening, old Joe goes into Susie's place. And uh, is ready to gun down the daughter except for instead of the daughter being there or in addition to the daughter being there is another kid and this would be Kid Blue. (laughs) Kid Blue tases old Joe and basically knocks him out. While that is happening, the continuation of back at the ranch, super slow-mo continues, but now Sid, you know, remember Sarah has pushed Joe out of the way, didn't catch Sid. Sid doesn't need to be caught. Sid has stopped falling and is not only keeping himself up, but now has levitated every object in the room, including Jesse. Jesse is floating in the air. Every piece of stick of furniture is floating in the air. And we see very clearly that this kid, Sid, is a TK and a TK to a really high degree. He's next gen TK. He's had the upgrade. And we see that Jesse is floating and is kind of, it's almost like slow-mo if you dropped ink onto a bit of water and the ink dissipates, stays fluid, but shapeless. And uh, that's kind of Jesse's insides right now. Yeah, it's not good for Jesse. It will not continue to be a good time because immediately after that, essentially the entire living room explodes. Boom. (laughs) Thus why Joe and Sarah needed to be outside. Sid has blown up the entire place, including Jesse, and saved Sarah. Indeed. And yet, Joe's does not have gratitude high on his menu about this. Joe is instantly annoyed, pissed even, that he wasn't told that Sid had this power. But he does put together that Sid is... Sid's a rainmaker. That's what comes together in Joe's mind because, oh, look... Little kid in this county at one of the locations and, oh, by the way, has super crazy telekinetic powers greater than anybody that we've ever seen. That sort of equals Rainmaker to me. And so he knows that he has to do something about that and chases Sid off into the fields. Yeah, with murderous intent. And then he winds up finding Sid and Sid 
you know, still in his cute slash awkward state, also now has blood all over him and looks pretty unhappy. He's not the wicked mastermind. That is the reason why Joe is chasing him. And Sarah has chased Joe this entire time, thinking that he's heading out to gun down her kid. Which I think he is. Which he is. And she's right about that. But yes, whenever Joe comes across Sid and finds him kind of this pathetic soul that he is, this little kid who's just gone through something traumatic, he doesn't shoot him and instead embraces him. And Sarah has explicitly said before he runs out there, it's like, yeah, I didn't tell you, but I can keep this kid under control. This is part of me shaping him as a parent. And that's what I'm going to do. Don't kill my son. Which I don't think he believes. You know, the kid might be beyond your control, which is why we were running out to shoot him in the first place. But (laughs) he does have you hiding in the safe. He doesn't off the kid. Instead, he tells Sarah to take Sid that they should take the truck and head north and get away from the city as far as they can. That's his instruction. I'm going to take care of things here. You get the hell out of Dodge. Meanwhile. And meanwhile. So we get to go back to the club. We haven't been at the club in a while. And back at the club, there are basically every gat available. It's an all hands on deck thing. And they are all getting ready to go after Joe and to really blow him up good because they've got all the big weapons out and everybody's getting ready. Old Joe, I mean. But they don't really have to do that because the bell on the back door rings. Remember the door that everybody that's a looper gets to come through? And outside the door is Kid Blue, and he has Old Joe basically by the ear and says, look what I brought you. Very proud of himself that he's managed to pull this off. Redemption. Redemption. We find out that the Gats aren't just there for Old Joe, that they're there for regular Joe, that they know he's at the farm, that they're going to go to the farm and they're going to shoot him up good. Old Joe has a hood on, is listening to this the entire time and waits for the right moment and then makes his move. And that move starts with kicking back into Kid Blue and knocking him to the ground and basically shooting him with his own gun. And for the next couple minutes or like 90 seconds, it's basically Bruce Willis with a weapon laying waste to people. It's a little bit like the Matrix lobby scene where they're flipping around and shells flying everywhere and whatever. It's that. And it works. Kills them all. It's a very exciting scene, but <laughs> well, it's not not it, exciting. I don't know. It, it seems to me a little bit like this is not a shoot 'em up kind of movie. No, and suddenly no, no, it, no. it's like, is here it, we go. Is it gratuitous? Yeah. Is it completely unnecessary? Superfluous? Superfluous. Is it superfluous? Yes, it is. But is it an entertaining couple of minutes to get us from what has been a touching hugging in a field scene to where we need to go? Yeah, I think maybe it's okay for that. Okay. Lots of guns, lots of cool looking stuff, whatever. Is Uh, it something if you came to see the movie because you like seeing Bruce Willis lay out fools? You know, there you go. The end result, really, of all of this is a couple of things. One of them is to just establish old Joe as big badass who can pull out big badass weapons and do big badass things. Okay. The other is that all of this killing throughout the club is eventually leading old Joe to right outside Abe's door. And Abe and a couple of dudes inside are the only people left alive in this club and are barricading themselves in the office. And we see that that doesn't hold for long because the door bursts open. The other thing it does is Kid C, remember he got shot because... Bruce had kicked him in the guts and shot him with his own gun. We find out that kids see he has been shot, but he is not dead. And so he gets up. He finds that Abe is dead and finds the scrap of map, not the scrap that got tore off, but the map with the piece that's missing on it where the farm should be. And so that tells kid A where to go 
and B, that that's where he needs to get his revenge for Abe or, or who he was his father figure or whatever else is the motivation, that that's where he needs to go. Okay, so when you're saying Kid A and Kid C, you're talking about Kid Blue. Good Lord, uh, I'm uh, getting yeah. him confused with Radiohead. Yeah, Kid Blue. Yeah, whatever that guy's <laughs> name is. Oh, so man. Kid Blue is still somehow alive and is still trying not to mess everything up. And inev- have to redeem himself. Inevitably, he's got to mess something up. He's Kid Blue, right? You know, you pick that yeah. name, it's not going to get better. <laughs> You got to envision a better self for yourself, Kid Blue. (laughs) Oh, he's on the warpath. Off he goes, right, for revenge. The road, the main road, I guess, the country road that leads from big Kansas City to middle of the fields, Kansas. This is where our next confrontation is going to take place. This is where Joe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, meets up with old Joe, who is coming out in the little golf cart. Remember the golf cart from earlier that we said we'd come back into play? Is that the same golf cart? It's never said that it isn't. It's just exactly the same. Back at the apartment, like he basically shotguns the person. I think like the guy's head drops down. And we see, so I I don't remember the golf cart in here not having a windshield. Now, maybe it's the same one. They got it to the body shop really quickly, but... (laughs) There isn't a good reason why it would be the same cart, but there isn't a good reason why you would choose an identical looking cart to play this scene out with when you could choose anything else. And yet they did. So I can't tell you. It's in the loop somewhere. That's true. I guess if you're you know, in a hurry, like, why would you take a golf cart out uh-huh. in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Why not? So there is this meeting of the two people out on the road, Joe and old Joe. Old Joe throws Joe a gold bar. You know, he says, you can go off and live your own life. Here's the gold. Go do your thing. I'm going to go do my thing. And of course, Joe doesn't want old Joe to do that. He wants to protect everybody out at the farm. He wants to protect Sid. Old Joe assures him, you know, all those people that were going to come after you, I've taken care of Here, take your gold. I've taken care of those people. Kid Blue, Radiohead guy, but that guy, I killed him earlier. He's not going to come after you, but I'm still going to go and I'm going to kill Sid. And that's what I'm going to do. In not letting him do that, Joe fires his blunderbuss. And of course, it's a blunderbuss. And so being too far away, he misses him a couple of times, can't seem to shoot his future self to stop things from happening. But there is something that is going to happen, which is going to (laughs) stop at least one of them. And that's because one of those old floating motorcycle things is coming. Here comes Kid Blue. Who, you know, in, in this typical way of getting into a situation and having it not go the way that he wanted it to, he knocks Joe to the ground and they have a bit of a firefight. But Joe comes up with a pretty good way to sort of defend himself and give him an advantage over Kid Blue. He essentially creates a smoke screen. What is he doing? He's shooting the ground or he's whatever it was to I, create the dust. It, yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's from the ground or if it's from the blunderbuss. Yeah. Uh, but basically blinds Kid Blue. Kid Blue loses control of the motorcycle and off he flies. And that's the end of that confrontation, I think, at that point. I think that's the, yeah, that's the last we see of Kid Blue. He didn't kill him, right? I don't remember seeing him like kill him. Maybe he we... did, but Kid Blue doesn't even deserve an on-screen death. That is probably um, true. Well, Or maybe it was a matter of we wanted to keep Joe as sympathetic as possible at this point and not have him dispatch a character who is probably going to hurt himself worse than Joe could if he just keeps going on. Or we want to keep as much of that Looper character universe alive as possible so that we can do a few <laughs> few spinoffs and sequels. There is that. The Kid Blue show coming to Netflix. <laughs> oh, man. Well, regardless, Kid Blue's out of the picture. We never see that guy again. We just had this little face off in the field, and there you go. 
it gets us back to the farm where Sarah, for the love of God, is still packing the truck with every single thing she can find and hasn't bothered to get into it and head north yet. They had to have been there for, I don't know, half an hour or something. She hasn't managed to leave yet, which is unfortunate because once she finally does get on the road and decides to leave down the one road that leads up to her property, she comes up on old Joe, who has managed to get away from the Kid Blue and Joe fight on the road and make his way up here and is walking dead center on the road. Yeah, he's really pretty uh, confident that even though she's in a truck that's, you know, got some speed, that he can just stand there in the middle of the road and he's going to come out the winner. He's Bruce freaking Willis. And uh, he has so much confidence and doesn't move out of the way that Sid, who doesn't want them to get near him, really, they want to you know, keep Sarah as safe as possible, does something, I think, intentionally, but also uncontrollably he causes the truck to stop so hard in such a way that it flips the truck and lands them on their top and basically makes them sitting ducks for the oncoming old Joe. They manage to escape their way out the truck. Sarah pushes the kid out in the field and says, run that way. Run. Yeah. Get to the cane. She follows after as quick as she can, but old Joe manages to get a shot off and knocks her down. And gets her out of the way, I think. Or or he fires and she trips again or something. He gets her out of the way somehow. Okay. That allows a shot to come through. Because she's basically between him and, and a clear line of sight of Sid as Sid's running. So once yeah. he's able to knock her down or she falls or whatever it is, he has a line of sight at Sid and shoots Sid. And we see Sid get hit. And for a moment you think, oh, no, he got the kid. Because we don't really see immediately what happened. Sarah, it seems, with her screaming, feels like maybe Sid is dead. But as old Joe is approaching both of them across the field, the TK kicks in. Mm -hmm. And every piece of field that there is to be levitated, barley stalks and grass and dirt and rocks and pebbles and old Joe. And Sarah. And Sarah, right. Everybody is levitated into the air because Sid has had enough and is pissed and now he's going to take care of business. He creates with the TK kind of this big shock wave. It just, yeah. you know, rolls its way across the field. And yet it still suspends old Joe and Sarah as well. But knocks Joe Joe, the young Joe, who is coming back to help them in the golf cart for some reason. Yeah. Knocks, that, knocks that golf cart out of alignment and makes it hard for Joe to keep going. And so we, we've stopped the person who was trying to come and help us. The outcome of this, which we assume is going to follow the outcome of what happened back at the living room, just in larger form out here, is that things are going to blow up. He's going to blow up old Joe. He's going to blow up everybody. But the thing that stops him from doing that is Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. Sarah basically makes good on her. I can calm him down and I can help him control his powers. She talks nicely to him and eases down this state where she and old Joe are up in the air. And calls herself as she's talking to him, calls herself mommy. Mommy's here for you. Mommy loves you. And as this calms Sid down and all the levitation stops, he finally calls her mom. Okay, so all of this has happened. She has calmed him down. Everything seems to be fine. And right after he calls her mom, 
right after the TK stops, Sarah sees that that might not have been a great thing because old Joe is rising up to fire. He's going to shoot Sid for real this time. So she is supposed to run after Sid into the field, but she doesn't. She basically stands up, physically puts her body between old Joe and Sid, you know, puts her arms out, waves him around, says, you're not going to do anything. Old Joe gives her a warning. You need to get out of the way. The implication being, if you don't, dot, dot, dot. You get in the way so I can't shoot the kid. I'll just shoot you and then shoot the kid. Joe is watching all of this happen, but from such a far enough distance that he's never going to get there in time to be able to help. Especially with those ineffective blunderbusses. Especially then. And he watches as old Joe shoots Sarah and kills Sarah and watches this mother sacrificing herself for her child, which is in direct opposition to this thing that he has talked about. If there's only one type of person, the person that's out for themselves, right? This is a physical demonstration of a mother dying for her son and a physical demonstration of a man, old Joe, who is killing for his wife because that's his motivation is to save this woman that he loves. That's why he's trying to take out the Rainmaker and all of that. So he's seeing all of these selfless acts happening as well as the aftermath. Yeah, he, he basically, if you remember from his tunnel talk with Sid, he says he was on a train and he imagines Sid being on a train after this, where Sid also no longer has a mother and um, is going to basically bound to grow up to be this vengeful person. Because we've gotten little bits of information about the Rainmaker earlier. Like some people say his mom got killed. Some people say he's got a glass jaw. And so it's clear to him that with a dead Sarah and a Sid on his own, it's going to be a bad cycle again. The voiceover comes back. And so we get the thought process of Joe as he's talking about this. And you're going to have a mother die for a son and a man who killed for his wife and a boy angry and alone. And it's a circle. And it's going to keep going round and round and round unless I do something about it. And so he does the one thing that he can do and has control over in order to disrupt this loop. And that is to turn the blunderbuss around the other direction. He shoots himself. Right in the chest. He's a couple of inches away, as they told us. Can't miss. It'll obliterate anything that close. It's an effective shot. And once he does that, old Joe vanishes. Yeah, and it's not even like a a soft vanish. Like he's just, he's gone as quickly as he had shown up in the beginning of the movie with the instant jump cut of him being there. He's gone. And we never see old Joe again. That breaks the loop for us that Joe, by sacrificing himself, doing the one thing for other people that he could do or the biggest thing for other people that he can do, has now saved uh, both Sarah and Sid. And this allows Sarah to take Sid back to the farm. And Sid is asking where Joe went. And Sarah just tells him Joe had to go away. So how does the movie end? We end with a little bit of aftermath. Sarah bandaging up Sid's face. Remember, Sid's been nicked by a bullet. Everything is going to be okay with mother and son. She walks out to the road where all of this has happened and sees Joe's gold bars laid out all over the ground, spilled from the back of the golf cart, right? This was the whole thing that the loops and closing your loop and your future and everything is all based around these gold bars. And they're now just strewn to the dirt. You know, a little bit of symbolism, I guess. She finds his body, Joe's body, and closes the pocket watch, which was the first thing we saw. That's the bookend. Uh, We saw him open his pocket watch at the beginning of the movie. She closes his pocket watch at the end of this to kind of shut down that loop, that time. And the last two things we see are her running her fingers across his hair, maybe kind of reminiscent of what he had talked about his mother doing. What his mom used to do. And Sid at home asleep, who is the kid that she can do that to here. And before we call that a wrap on this, you know, we talked about the mother stuff in here that keeps recurring. 
Did you take anything away from that in terms of there being like I was reading too much into it and saying Sid was Joe and Joe was Sid because here's the mother that was the mother who gave up a child and then, you know, used to run fingers through hair and all that. Like there was those sort of echoes. I know that isn't what it is, but that's what it felt like it was hinting at. I I think you're totally on the mark that she's not related to him, but she kind of fulfills a motherly role for him in a way, although he's dead. Um, which I think is kind of, you know, I don't know if you also caught when Bruce Willis is in Shanghai and his wife has this like rub hand across the foot sort of thing. And that gets repeated as well Mm -hmm. in the farmhouse with Sarah and Sid. And I guess the way of saying it, or one way of interpreting it is that for the men in this movie, or at least for Joe, female nourishment, female energy, female support, your relationship with a woman is that was at the core of a man's relationship with a woman is the same, whether or not that's your mother or whether that's your lover, which, yeah, I mean, there's love, but I would argue there is sort of different kinds of love. And this movie does kind of smudge that line a little bit. You know, I'm thinking of it from a woman's point of view. I'm wondering if it's like men just never grow up. If you're a guy and you're still kind of what I want is a woman to comfort me first and foremost. I want a wife know, like dear old mom. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I want basically the same things in an adult relationship with a woman that I wanted as a child that I had with my mom. I don't know if that's intentional or if I'm making reading too much into it, but I don't it, know it if it's intentional me. either. I have no idea if it's an intentional thing or if it's a subconscious thing, but there's enough of it there to be able to look at it and go. Hmm. I wonder. I don't don't mean to say that Ryan Johnson sees no difference between a woman who he's married to or a woman who gave birth to him. But there does sort of seem to be an understanding that no matter what your age and what your relationship with the woman, she's going to be the soothing person for you. Which if I were a woman, I don't know if I would appreciate necessarily. Right. That, you know, I, I don't want to have to be doing the same thing for my male partner that I had to do for my male child. Yeah, I agree with you that I think that would not be looked kindly upon. Not being a lady myself, I can't speak to it, but that is what I would guess. Either way, this is how this movie ends up with our lady on the farm who didn't come in until three quarters of the way through the film or halfway through the no, film. Come on. And her son's halfway. safe. And her son's safe. And our future and past self both no longer existent as far as Joe is concerned and all the other loose ends wrapped up in the gold laying on the ground. That's the end of Looper. And that loop is closed. (laughs) But before we completely wrap things up and do our last looks, I want to do something that I don't often do on films, but I am going to do on this one, a segment that we call Subpar. That's cruel, Josh. Subpar is a chance where we allow ourselves to wallow for just a second in all of the not greatness that a film has to offer. And as good as we have talked about this film being in a lot of areas, and I I mean that this is a quality film in a lot of areas, there are some bits of the film that really aren't. And enough so that myself and I would imagine you on some of them are pulled out of the narrative and notice those things. And so I want to give us a chance to talk about that. But maybe we should both start with the same topic. 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt and what he looks like. Uh, first of all, I've got to say how honored I am that after three seasons, I picked a movie and it made you want to make a special category for <laughs> here are the things that I didn't like. And before we go into this, I actually do like this movie a lot. And there's a lot of stuff and I think there's a lot of density, which people probably got with the pace at which we were describing things. That being said, when you have more moving parts, there are more things that might not work out quite as well. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face is kind of one of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, it looks weird. It doesn't look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And because we have a pretty good idea what younger Bruce Willis looked like, what he looked like at least in, wow, how many years ago? Were we the 80s, 40 years ago? Yeah. I'm thinking Moonlighting. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face in this movie makes him not look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but it also does not really make him look like Bruce Willis. And so you're left with an actor who's kind of made up, but the purpose for which he's made up isn't quite there, in my opinion. Yeah. He reminds me of Square Jaw from Dick Tracy. Was that the name of one of the characters? Like from no. the movie from the early 90s or late 80s or whatever that was. I am guessing that it was all prosthetic, that it wasn't like yes. digital effects like that didn't really exist at that point in a way where you could make it believable consistently all the way through the movie. Well, according to the commentary, that was a consideration, but they very much wanted to do it all practically. You know, here's the thing. Like you said, you know what Joseph Gordon-Levitt looks like. You know what Bruce Willis looks like. If you're trying to say, you know, it's the baby of those two. That's what this guy should look like. He don't look like that. <laughs> he's just lumpy in the wrong places and he's concave in the wrong places. And it just, it's weird. And I don't know that it's consistent throughout the movie. There are some times when it, I really don't notice it. And then there are some times when I feel like, guy, you have so much foundation on that it's really noticeable. Yeah. Uh, and that does take me... It doesn't ruin the movie for me, but it definitely no. is. It's sort of like when you see a cigarette mark in the upper left-hand corner. It's like you notice it, you get past it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt aside, let's talk about some of the other things that maybe fall into the subpar category. You know, I know something that we hit us both. I think this movie looks great. I really do think that, especially for $30 million, they did a fantastic job. Yes. When it comes to the floating bike scenes, mm. that's definitely something which didn't quite succeed to the level of most of the other parts of the movie. That's kind. Uh, yeah. And I think they know it because the floating bike scenes are so brief. But imagine basically somebody sitting on a prop and having maybe some winds, but the rest of it is just kind of green screened, like you're in an Alfred Hitchcock driving scene or something like that. So much of the movie feels lived in and real. And when you get onto these bike scenes, it suddenly seems like we really wanted to have this bike scene in here. We couldn't quite pull it off with the budget that we had. And, um, you know, it, it's there and it's gone again, but it's something which does take you out of the movie momentarily. Like, I'm with you on that. You've got $30 million. You're doing what you can do. You're a filmmaker that hasn't made a lot of films before this, so you're still feeling your way around the whole special effects thing. I have some forgiveness around that. And because it's not just the bike scene. There are some other green screen moments in there with cities and things behind them that just, it doesn't look right. There was a little bit of extra work that needed to be done that wasn't done, and it just doesn't look right. The part that I look at and go, what are you thinking? Is if you, Steve, are correct, and they realized that, that this isn't really working, we can't quite do it up to the level that we want to do, so we're going to keep it kind of short where we have to do it. Don't base the climax of your film or the, the near climax of your film around a scene that requires you to do a lot more of that than you have in any other part of the film. And which is, by the way, the worst of it. When, well, when we're, It is, though. When he's, well, when driving, he's writing the movie, he's not saying, I'm 
going to have to like keep within this budget, he's probably thinking somebody will be interested in this and we will have find the money to make it worthwhile. Understood. But there's such a thing as a rewrite on the fly. And when you get into it and you kind of see how things are going and you see that you've made this amazing movie and yet you have the, you know, you have like the Wicked Witch sort of moment with a guy on a bike. You might think about throwing a few extra million dollars at it and fixing it. Somebody would, you know, you're going to make your money back. It's a decision that I don't understand because I think it's so glaring that it takes away from everything that you have worked so hard to build up to that moment to just throw slop at it at the end. Wow. Okay. I <laughs> agree, to, agree to disagree. You know, I think it would be probably pretty hard to do the fly thing. And maybe they didn't even know when they shot it. Maybe, you know, maybe the effects for those things came in post-production. Understood. And, I have yeah. strong opinions, Steve. No, I, and, I don't have the responsibility of making the film, and so therefore I'll have all the opinions in the world. Ryan Johnson has more skills than I will ever have in my life, so props to this guy. I'm the lowly guy with a podcast that's going to comment on it. That's what I do well. <laughs> anyway, apparently it bothered me more than it bothered you, but it really bothered me. I can tell. Yeah, it did. Uh, one thing I think is we should mention is that part of the reason why this was an especially talky episode is because there is so much stuff this movie presents to you. And it's really to the movie's credit, I think, and I admire this, that it utilizes the language of cinema so well that all this stuff, you absorb it, you take it in, you remember it, and it just moves like a bullet. You know, some things I thought of, and then I thought of them again, I said, okay, he beat me to it. He thought of that. For example, I was wondering why... Say, for example, what's the name of Bruce Willis's wife? Bruce Willis's yeah. wife. That's her name. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of weird for somebody who's such an important driver of character motivation. But then I realized the reason why we don't get it is because Bruce Willis is trying to keep her entirely separate from Joe. And I thought, OK, yeah, that makes sense. One that I couldn't quite get a handle on is... If you remember from the beginning, why do they send these bodies back? Because they can't bury them in the future because they're easy to find. And the Rainmaker is incredibly powerful and he hires these three people. And what's the thing they do? They shoot Bruce Willis's wife in the gut and they don't shoot him, but they, they shoot her. And I know it's a spur of the moment kind of thing, but it also just seems like if you're making a big deal out of how hard it is to dispose of bodies in the future, maybe your criminal mastermind shouldn't hire the three stooges who also apparently can't operate a zip tie no, correctly. they can't. You know, they can't. And the movie, it moves so well that the first time I see it, I don't think of that, but then I watch it later and it's kind of like you have to make an allowance. And maybe that's one of the reasons why this movie hasn't kind of held on with its own cults, because the harder you look at it, the more you see a seam here and there. And I'm glad you mentioned, too, because it totally slipped my mind. We never mentioned what happened to the wife. In the course of talking about this film, we talked about how they dragged Bruce out of the house and they lit the house on fire and we didn't see what happened prior to that. But we never said exactly what happened to the wife, which was she got shot. And actually, now that we're talking, I bet they put her in there and they set the house on fire and let her in there. So that's how they got rid of the body. I've watched CSI. I know you're not going to get rid of all the evidence by burning the house. I've got one little last one, and it's minor, but it is there. Lay it on me. My last one is, and I've hinted at this a little bit as we've gone through, this concept of the looper and the assassins and time travel, that is very inventive. I haven't seen anything really like that prior to this. I really enjoyed that as a concept, and to me it felt fresh and, and kind of original. 
what didn't feel fresh and original was a lot of other things that were in the film that felt like they were pulled from other decently well-known time travel films. So the person from the future coming to kill the person in the past so that they won't affect the future, right? We stole that from Terminator. The whole disappearing fingers and face and all of that, and that's basically the picture from Back to the Future. It felt like there were past movies that we really were borrowing heavily from and just tweaking mildly and then mushing them all together into a film. And I thought that was a bit of a shame because the concept was so inventive. And at the time this movie came out, a subsequent movie had not been made, but there was a script that had been running around for a long time that everybody wanted to make called Gemini Man, in which somebody does battle with his, I believe, 20 year younger self. Uh Eventually, Ang Lee made it with Will Smith. And I didn't think about it till I resaw this movie but I wonder whether somebody might have thought, you know, that, that's an intriguing idea. Nobody's making it. Maybe I can make it work. Uh-huh. Or if it just, you know, it's a great concept. And so you can come about it organically. But again, there's a lot of stuff in here which does seem a little familiar, I guess you could say. You know, it takes me out of the movie for a minute and it's like, it's not a bad thing, but it's not a good thing either. It's a disappointing we, thing. It was disappointing. It was disappointing, but not so disappointing I didn't keep watching. But I think this actually is a good place to segue into the last looks and our kind of bigger wrap up, our bigger thoughts on things as we bring everything to a close. For every other episode, everyone has heard me say this from the beginning of the season. I cannot play the last looks thing anymore. I just can't. So here we are, everybody. We are in last looks. That's it. That's all you get from me this one. The loop is closed (laughs) on that. Evil dies tonight. We can now talk about our thoughts and feelings overall about everything. And I think that whole two halves of a movie thing is where I start. I enjoyed the first half of the movie so damn much that I wanted the second half of the movie to be reflective of that first half. I wanted to feel like there was this sort of continuity line, not just of story, but of the atmosphere and the type of chase and the type of everything that sort of went on in the first. I really wanted to continue all the way through because I liked it. But when we get to the part to where, like you said, everything kind of slows down, it becomes more of a surrogate family film, you know, to some degree. And we got kids and we've got sweet moments and whatever. Okay, I get it for the story. I didn't like it as much as if they hadn't been there. I can't disagree with you about the difference between the two halves, but I think it works for me. In fact, I think in a way it keeps it fresh. I think there are a lot of movies that basically just do more of what happens in the first uh, half. They just do it bigger. And often by the time I get to the grand finale, I'm inoculated by that point to what they're doing and just doing more of it or doing a larger version of it. It's kind of uh, like the end of the roller coaster where it should be the most exciting part of the ride, but it's not. It's just kind of like now we're just going to play out the thread. And I think the change in tone for me makes it a better movie. I'm actually in agreement with you that as in, you know, music as in movies, I don't love it when we're just one note, right? I don't like it if we start somewhere and then we get to the end and we're in exactly the same place tonally and and the rest of it. I do think, though, that there is a difference between that and maintaining a consistency in feel all the way through just a general vibe and then not doing that. The thing in my head when I'm saying that, it's sort of like if somewhere in the middle, Blade Runner had gone to the beach. You worked so hard to build something in the beginning, and then you steal it from me and put me in a place that doesn't really match what you built. It's a nit on my part, but I think it keeps it from being maybe the very strong A that it could have been otherwise. Well, this friendship is over. This loop is closed. (laughs) Um, 
Well, there we go. We are done talking about the film itself and can now move on to much more awesome things like You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is the quiz segment here on Subgenre. As always, I am going to give my guest host, Steve Baumgartner, a multiple choice question. I'm actually going to give you three. And uh, if you can answer at least two of those right, you are going to be the recipient of a prize that I typically have no way of giving you. And for this time around, you will be playing for a blunderbuss, which is suitable for cross-dimensional contract killing or close quarters skeet. I thought it was going to be the hovercraft. <laughs> I can't deal with that hovercraft anymore. We're, we're just going <laughs> to stick with a blunderbuss. And you're going to answer some questions. Are you ready to do that right now, Steve Baumgartner? Locked in and ready. Here we go. Question number one. In 1994, physicist Stephen Hawking noted his skeptical view of actual time travel, writing that the proof against it is we haven't already been invaded by what? Is it A, hordes of future tourists, B, armies from Atlantis, or C, bachelorette parties from alternate dimensions? Okay, I thought that I had an answer for this, and it's none of those choices. So I will say A. I think that if time travel were to actually exist, or if it exists in the future, that eventually people would come from the past, although maybe they're here and they're just discreet. So your answer is A, hordes of future tourists? Yeah. That is correct. Absolutely Ah, right. Yes. In 1992, I said 94, and and that's when it came out in book form. But in 92, Hawking released this nine-page paper in which he posited that the laws of physics may prevent the possibility of time travel and said, quote, the proof against time travel is the fact that we have not been invaded by hordes of tourists from the future. But we might have been. Who would know? Stephen Hawking. That's who we I mean, know. in this movie, they managed to turn off the spigot so only certain people get to time travel. So. It's true. Well, for the time being, we're going to assume that you got that one right. Take a win where you can get it. And yeah. uh, are you ready to move on to question two? I'm trembling and excited. Here we go. Question number two. Albert Einstein, in effect, argued that time travel happens all the time around us, which he explained in his theory of special relativity. In keeping with this theory... Which of these inventions do we now actually time tweak every now and again to keep working correctly? Is it A, clocks on GPS satellites? Is it B, the amount of sand grains in an egg timer? Or is it C, the you have used this much screen time notifications on Apple iPads? I think it's A again. A, clocks on GPS satellites? Yeah, I can't remember exactly, but I seem to remember that there's some sort of adjustment that has to happen based on the laws of physics. That is absolutely correct. Global positioning systems circle the Earth from about 12,500 miles away. They're moving at about 8,700 miles per hour. So if you do all the special math that has to go with that, including the fact that things closer to the Earth move at certain speeds versus things that are, you know, in orbit, then you end up with an extra 38 microseconds in a satellite's day. And so that has to be accounted for on Earth-bound GPSs in order for them to stay in sync. So yes, we do have time travel happening all the time around us and we do have to account for it now. It is a real thing. And you got your second question right. Good job, Steve. I'm golden. Thank you. Now it's all gravy, man. You, you got two of the three. Let's see if we can go for the hat trick and, and get you a perfect score. Are you ready for three? Lay it on me. Okay, here we go. Question number three. 
for many physicists, going forward in time can seem more plausible than going backwards, but not for all. The Tipler Cylinder, named after astronomer Frank Tipler, says all it takes to do time travel in a backwards way is a cylinder spun like a spaghetti swirl made of dense matter around which a spaceship could travel backwards in a closed time-like curve. There's just one problem with that theory playing out anytime soon. Which is it? Is it A, that the cylinder would need to be infinitely long, which we can't do? Is it B, we would need to invent a new type of matter, which we don't have? Or is it C, quite obviously both A and B? <laughs> um, I'll say C. Of course it's C. It's a ridiculous yeah. idea called the Tipler Cylinder, at least as far as I'm concerned. But yes, the cylinder would have to be infinitely long. There would have to be a brand new type of matter which does not exist to date that would need to be invented or found. And so we have neither of those things can do neither of those things. And so therefore, the Tipler Cylinder don't matter. That is it, Mr. Steve. You have done it. You have won yourself a blunderbuss. That's yeah. right. I can't believe that I got all those questions right since they were so <laughs> science-based. That sound means we're into rave rental or refund. We have talked ourselves to death about this movie, but I'm going to give us one last chance to rate it. Is it a rave? This movie is amazing. Please go see it now. Is it a rental? Yeah, it was fine. I'll see it when I see it. Or is it a refund? Nah, I hate this movie. Take it away and never let me see it again. Rave, rental, or refund? What say you, Steve Baumgartner? I would go rave on this. I really think that the filmmaking is of such a high quality and there is enough imagination here. Yeah, I really do like this movie a lot. Fight me. No need for fisticuffs or blunderbusses, but I'm falling firmly in the rental camp. I think that's probably been obvious on this. I think it's a good movie. I do. Is it one that I would go running to watch again anytime soon? I don't know that I would. Is it a movie that I would watch if it was on TV? You know, if it just happened to come on or somebody was watching it? Yeah, I'd watch it. So I think it's good, not great, although there are moments of great in it. So we got one rave and one rental that averages out to a raval or a rent-ave rent or something like that. <laughs> Well, hey, it has been a long day. What you can't hear behind the scenes is that we've had power fluctuations and other techie stuff going on, but we made it to the other side. And so what awesome is going on in life? What do people need to know? And where can we find you if we want to talk to you? I mean, what's awesome is for people who know me to know. But uh, where can you find me? Well, you can find me on eHarmony and Match, Bumble, Hinge, Tinder, Grinder, Spooner, Scruff, Elite Singles, Silver Singles, Christian Mingle, Latin Mingle, Black People Meet, J Date, Mecca Love, Ashley Madison, Zeusk, and F Finder. <laughs> We're done. This loop is closed. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, screenwriter and studio exec, Steve Baumgartner. Our theme music that you hear behind me all the time, that's Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. We are now more than halfway through season three, so if you haven't already, grab everyone you know, shake them by the lapels and Tell them to do like you did and subscribe to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and pretty much wherever else you find podcasts. We've got two seasons of past episodes you can enjoy. There's bonus content and more new episodes coming your way very soon. 
Also, make sure you leave your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's, um, what's that word? Massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. We'll take your money, too. We're not proud. Support Subgenre with your donations by clicking the link at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at SubgenrePod. Time will keep on twisting, so stay with us. And in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.